We've gotten that mastered. Absolutely. Um, it's. I think we should we should just release an album after we finish the run of doing all the Discworld books of just forty-two tracks <laughs> singing the same song in slightly different, but always consistently off-key ways. <laughs> It's what the fans want. Exactly. It's what the fans want. That's why we do this. <laughs> uh, hello, friends. Welcome to Radio Morfork once again, the podcast where we discuss Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time, ranking, reviewing, analyzing, rambling, and so on and so on. I am Colm, and I am here, as ever, joined by... Uh, Steve, supposedly. Allegedly. Uh, well, we haven't got definitive proof of that. I'm in a new country. How would you know? Communicating, vo- yeah, or it's communicating via screen. You could be a, a clever facsimile of Steve, and mm. the real Steve is tied up somewhere. My uh, my clax has been uh, intercepted by uh, the the Grags, the Grags of Japan. <laughs> um, we've come a long way. It's I'm getting see, it's a possibility. <laughs> That's caused me great concern. Um, <laughs> the idea that you might be tied up somewhere by murderous crags. You can feel it, probably hear a tremor in my voice. Uh, yeah. Test the listeners, I'm bucketing with sweat right now. Anyway, fear and concern is definitely radiating through and not, you know, uh, common or garden apathy. Yeah, you can't tell at all that he's actually got like his slippers on up on top of like uh, the table there, lying back, sipping an iced tea and laughing merrily at the thoughts of me being tied up by some Japanese dwarves. Um, so, yeah, uh, we've come a long way. I'm starting to get really uh, not nostalgic per se. Well, nostalgic in a sense. We're getting to the point now where we're nearly finished this series. Um, but yeah, it's starting to get kind of sad. And today... What is it we are reading? We are reading Raising Steam. Raising Steam, yes, the uh, 40... Is it the 40th or the 41st? It's the 40th, 40th. Discworld book. The penultimate. And it's the last... Yeah, it's, it's the last Ankh-Morpork book. It's the last, uh, I suppose, the last um, adult Discworld book, since mm. the, the final one is a YA, one is the Shepherd's Crown. So it's, I assume, I haven't read the Shepherd's Crown, but I assume it's our last look at moist and vimes and veterinary mm. and a host of other uh, characters here in the Ankh-Morpork pork milieu well unless the shepherd's crown turns out to be uh like a star wars christmas special style deal where like they all get together and just like dance around on hogswatch uh completely out of character and just like you know sharing christmas or uh, hogwatch pudding is that a thing i can't remember if hogwatch pudding is a thing it's it's just a Discworld version of that old uh, Flash animation video from years ago, <laughs> the Ultimate Showdown of Ultimate Destiny. Oh yeah, it lists all the characters and pits them against one another. <laughs> it's great! Yeah, well, I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> but but firstly, we've got to get through this, and before uh, discussing it in detail, we should probably recount the plot. Uh, so we we begin with. Um, I, I for, uh, Dick Simnel, uh, who's the son of Ned Simnel from Reaper Man. Yes, sorry. And he has developed. 
just to interrupt there, I yeah, I yeah. had no idea about that until I just checked notes afterwards. Like that was the guy. <laughs> that was the guy who um was charged with killing uh Death's scythe, or sorry, Bill Dor's scythe, so that he could take the ghost of the scythe into the afterlife so he could attack the fake death. Um that was such a shocker, I didn't realise that was him. <laughs> Yeah, and and he builds the uh, the combine harvester that Bill mm. Lore has his John Henry jewel with. Uh, actually, I, I think there is something beyond just the the kind of neat fanish kind of not not in a wink at this character Sun Chung. But I think there is something significant about the fact that uh, thematically about the fact that uh, Dick is is Ned's son. But we'll get to that later. But he develops a, a steam engine basically that can uh, essentially brings brings um steam engines trains to the disc he goes to Ankh-Mor Park to seek his fortune where he teams up with his, his patron is uh, Harry King who the king of the Golden River who hitherto has uh, gained fortune and fame but perhaps not um, repute in Ankh-Mor Park through um, basically through, through uh, toilet related services through repurposing bodily fluids and uh, waste for, for the good of the city which is a very lucrative line of work but not a particularly respectable one which his, his wife is concerned about Effie King and to some extent he is as well so he kind of sees sponsoring this new endeavour of the railway as his chance to not only further enrich himself but also to earn respectability Veterinary is Lord Veterinary is initially somewhat reluctant about the railway, but begins to get behind it. We we have a scene where he's travelling by coach to Uberwald, and he's struck by how long and uncomfortable the journey is. So he kind of sees the benefit in uh, having this this rail system that will allow for much swifter and much more comfortable travel between those two places and between many other places. So he then employs Moist von Lipwig. He tasks him with ensuring the, they build, first it's a railway to Querm, and then uh, later to, to Uberwald. So what, what challenges does Moist encounter in that task, Steve? Well, Moist, when he goes to Harry King's junkyard and he sees Iron Girder, which is the name that has been given to the first railway engine that Dick Simnel uh, creates, uh, he sees tons of potential in this. So he basically starts developing all the ideas that would that would typically come with the invention of uh, the modern railway. Um, but in building the railway, one thing, a difficult challenge that comes up is if they want to build a railway, railway through uh, lands, he has to negotiate with the landowners to make sure that they will be allowed to actually build or put the railway through those lands. Um, this is something that makes up a, quite a big chunk of the book, interestingly enough, that uh, he's visiting all these landowners and basically it's it's a bit... I felt this bit was a little bit heavy-handed and we'll come to this later, how he's basically pointing out all the uh, perks of having uh, the railroad running through your land, uh, what will likely happen out, out of this and how uh, suburbs are will be created, basically. While he's doing this, though, there have been murmurings around the disc of uh, Clax Towers being attacked by these not exactly rogue dwarves, well, kind of dwarf fundamentalists who are very, uh, very much against the advance of technology and very, 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 very much into the idea of dwarves staying underground and not uh, associating with... um, you know, other races, especially trolls, but also humans. And the whole uh, notion of the train is just completely abhorrent to them. 
so at one point, uh, now, re- now it should be noted that the low king, Reese Reeson, who we've encountered at several in several other books before this, well, two or three, um, he is very forward thinking and he is actually for the railroad. He is very uh, progressive. He's a very progressive king. Uh, and this culminates in some interesting ways. How does it culminate, Colin? So you you then have the uh, the the low king comes out to is it Angmorpark he's visiting or somewhere else? In any I think case, isn't he it? leaves. Yeah, or he leaves the Schmaltzburg mm. where his capital is, and while he's gone, there's a coup led by Ardent, who is one of the villains from Tud, who's kind of the head of the the fundamentalist Grags, who takes over from uh, from from the the low king. So then they arrive at the solution that Moist will very uh, rapidly build the railway to uh, Uberwald, which will be able to transport the Loking back, and he'll be able to nip this coup d'etat in the bud before it, I suppose, before it can do any, uh, you know, lasting damage to dwarf relations with uh, with with the rest of of this world society. So this is seemingly a uh, an impossible task Moises the, the track isn't actually finished so like as they're as the train is leaving the track is being built further on down the line Moises is accompanied on on this uh, endeavour by Commander Vimes several members of the watch by some goblins who he uh, they, they goblins who were introduced to in Snuff have become a big part of the clack service apparently like they love uh, they, they have a real natural aptitude for clambering up and down the clax towers, and he discovered some goblins on some of the land he's building the the Quermian railway through. Uh, so they've kind of been they've been now employed in the the service of furthering the railway as well. So they go, they they get the uh, the train sets out to Uberval. They encounter difficulties along the way. There's like Grags attack them. They you know stage a landslide. There's Grags fighting them on the, the roof of the train. Um kind of I, I as I'm trying to remember what like trying to remember whether I've forgotten anything. It just <laughs> it, it, we just do have it, I suppose what what takes a lot of time on page but doesn't take a whole lot of time to say just a lengthy stretch of the train going to Uberwald, them encountering various obstacles, getting by those obstacles. We do have a brief scene when the train stops for repairs in Simnel's hometown, and Moist talks with his mother, who's a midwife, and she sort of intimates that she thinks there's something up with the the Low King, Mm. but we don't exactly get told what that is at the time. I think eagle-eyed readers can probably piece together what exactly it is. So when the train does arrive in Uberwald, the Low King is essentially able to bloodlessly, I suppose, put an end to the coup. Like he just makes a, you know, speech, wins over the the uh, dwarves that have been cowed under the Grags and under Ardent, reveals that he's a, um, a female uh, Low Queen and is is pregnant, which was sort of his gender or her gender, I suppose, as I should now say, was kind of hinted at at the very end of the Fifth Elephant. But in a kind of ambiguous way where you're left unsure whether it's like she asks Cheery for some tips about clothes or makeup or something. But it's kind of ambiguous as to whether she's actually asking for herself or it's just a sort of like jokey way of kind of putting Cheery at her ease and show like showing that this 
uh, you know, open displays of dwarf femininity are, are okay as far as the low king goes. But this is a particularly revolutionary move because while dwarves have presumably had many low kings who are actually female, the idea of openly proclaiming your gender was previously um, taboo, and it's I suppose sparked something of a uh, or is the culmination of something of a social revolution among among dwarf society that we've seen throughout the books. But that's pretty much it, isn't it? Then they get back to Ankh-Morpork. What we're, we're told they're kind of a little while in Schmalzburg because of damages to the train, but you know we ultimately get back to Ankh-Morpork. Harry King is given a peerage, much to the delight of his wife and her search for respectability. And yeah, that, that's kind of it as far as events go in the book, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting book in that it's narratively relatively simple, but... Personally, I think it's thematically a little bit complicated. Um, and that's what, for me, made this a really, really good read. Um, I don't want, I, I don't know about you, but this book surprised me. I, I really enjoyed this one quite a lot. It was, I, I, as you said, this is like the last kind of Ankh-Morpork book and the last uh, adult Discworld book, if you, uh, you could say. Um, I hadn't read it before this. And yeah, I was have to say I was very pleasantly surprised. I really enjoyed this overall. Uh, how did you feel about it? I did not like it. I, oh, I, really? <laughs> yeah. I, I, now, like, I, I, there's, there's certainly, there, there, it isn't, for me, wasn't entirely without merit would have value there were interesting ideas there were some nice little scenes i liked but i just thought overall it was bloated and dramaless and without the um kind of i suppose shallow in some ways in, in the ways in which it dealt with some of the themes and ideas that i feel like in other discworld books and just elsewhere in general are dealt with it with much more depth and complexity than it is here and i must say like this uh, well, maybe we'll leave this to the end because we we got a Twitter question about this. But I, uh, I I've said in in previous podcasts that there's a kind of narrative that at a certain stage Pratchett's you know battle he begins to lose his battle with Alzheimer's and this triggers a, a decline in the quality of the books. And we've sort of seen you know in that that this that isn't precisely true. Like there are plenty mm. of really excellent highlights in the, the latter Discord books, particularly from, from Tiffany Aiken. Mm, yes. Uh, but, you know, else, elsewhere as well. And I, I felt too, like for one, I'm, I'm never comfortable, you know, not being a medical professional uh, armchair diagnosing like, you know, his Alzheimer's and the impact of that and pointing to bits in the books I don't like and saying, well, this must be mm, because mm. he was suffering from this, uh, you know, cognitive impairment. And I, I made the point that I felt like a lot of the things that either we didn't like or other people didn't like in some of the later books feel as much like just the work of, like, even if he had been in the, the pink of health in mind and body, he's 30-odd books in, maybe he's running out of passion or ideas for some of the settings in this world, like Ankh Morpork, that, you know, he's kind of got... Had, gone or felt maybe felt that he had to go back to over and over again because of fan demand i mean if you think early on in the discourse we get like like saying the the mid you know the first 20 books or so it feels like you're either getting a new character introduced or maybe you're getting only the second or third book of a recurring character like the witches or the watch or death or whatever and then later on by like the you know mid to late 30s in terms of the 
chronological order of the series, you're getting, you know, whatever, the fifth or sixth watch book. You're getting kind of like Ankh-Morpork three, four books in a row. So maybe there just is a sense of him kind of, pardon the pun, but running out of steam a bit. And also that he's a really successful author by this point, and as happens with many really successful authors late in their career, their editors are a lot less judicious and maybe have a lot harder a job in getting them to edit certain things. So some of the bloat and some of the uh, structural issues we taught in previous books, you look at it and you think, well, I I don't know, maybe this is because of, uh, as he called it, the embuggerance, or maybe it's just because he's, you know, his his editors aren't going to say no to him anymore because he's uh, like a really famous, successful author. But this was the first one where, some of the problems that I thought, like, yeah, I can, again, I, I don't want to say for definite, but I can definitely see more of a case to be made that this feels the result of someone who's having difficulty writing the way he did. Like, I, I believe he's on record as saying he used, like, a text-to-speech device or, uh, you know, uh, he would, like, dictate for, for this one. And I feel like there's a lot of... Like, like that might be the shortest plot summary we've we've ever done. And it's, it's one of the longest Discworld books. It's like, yeah, mm. like... But my edition is 475 pages. Do you have that one? No, I have the, I have the, the crappy Posh Adel cover. Oh. Because uh, I just o- ordered it online. You, you said how many pages you had? 475. Uh, I've got 375. Wow, a whole 100, le- 100 less, but... The, the writing's a lot bigger on this because, you know, I, I need that. <laughs> Those bits with Moist where he goes... Um, early on that again we we kind of brushed over uh when to the we landowners goes to the landowners yeah. to negotiate the, the, I, I was looking up about uh, i like the, the grammatical terminology for this because it sort of felt off where I, I i think i may have this right in that like a lot of them are told in the past perfect sense so you know this world in general is told in the past tense like moist said vimes ran down the street but there's an immediacy to it. You're in the room with Moist, you're on the street with Vimes, and you're watching these events unfold uh, just a second behind them, as it were. Like It feels like you're only getting into past tense because you're just being told this uh, moments later, and that brings a, a sense of immediacy and a sense of vitality to it. Whereas here, there's this sense of distance where it's like we kind of get these scenes between Moist and the landowners narrated as if they've like happened weeks ago you know it's like oh like moist went in and then this happened and the guy said that but like there's no sense of tension in them you know they're all narrated as if like they've happened sometime in the past and rather than kind of being like one second behind the action as we are the, the typical past tense we're several weeks behind it in some case so we're sort of getting scenes where the end of the scene the resolution is presented as like a fait accompli from the very start of it. You know, it's like we enter into this scene, but the way in which the, the scene's written tells us that, like, oh, yeah, Moist is going to, like, ultimately has turned this guy around. Here's how he done it, you know? That was the bit that jumped out to me as, like, oh, I can see how people would read this as a result of him not physically typing the books anymore and dictating them instead, and it leads to this difference in the grammatical structure of it that in turn leads to a lack of tension or you know kind of stakes in those in those bits where they're all presented as just really straightforward and 
you know, completely smooth. I would argue that he is actually employing like a really slow burn, like a build intention, because it all sort of culminates in the final train journey, which I personally thought was like a really action packed, very like exciting thing. It was it reminded me a lot of the uh, trip on the ferry that uh, he did on Snuff. Um, But I think it was uh, executed a lot better here. It's I I can see how you could say that it's kind of shallow, but it's something I just found myself very invested in. Uh, I really enjoyed how Moist takes the moment to jump up on the roof and just, you know, say, when will I ever get a chance to do this again? And that that kind of ties into the fight that he has on the roof because he kind of Terry Pratchett takes a break beforehand. He doesn't say, oh, and a fight happened on the roof and that's it. Like uh, he actually he takes his time with it he shows moist getting up on the roof first and having i think what he describes as the cigarette break which is what in the book that we reviewed not it's not a cigarette break because it doesn't happen at the end but uh it reminds me of um there's this technique that uh hayao miyazaki does in ghibli movies i forget what the japanese term is but it's basically something that he employs in all his movies where nothing really happens and the person just takes a moment to kind of just be and take it in and it helps you like understand their character better in a very distorted sort of way i feel like this moment where he gets on the top of the train is moist's version of that because it's not a very casual kind of oh and moist got a coffee and drank it because that's not his character moist for whatever reason gets on the uh, roof of the train and just experiences what it's like to be moving at high speed like living on the edge like he could die but he's just like yes this is amazing and that is a perfect summary of his character and then this ties into how well he's able to actually fight off the grags later on um I thought like that moment was just brilliant I love that the entire train journey section in particular I thought was excellent and I can forgive a lot of the bloat I'm not going to say it's not bloated you are absolutely right it is a very long book and there's a lot that could be cut especially from the bit where he's meeting with the landowners Uh, but because it's a slow burn and it builds towards this I would completely forgive him for that I I li- like I like the bits on the, the parts of the train. I mean, I think Pratchett's enthusiasm for trains and the railway in general really sings through in those moments, and just the setting of them is quite simply but vividly depicted. You know, I had a very clear picture in my head at all times, and I need the scenes on the train of what it was like and just the experience of yeah. There's such odd um, settings trains really because you just like by virtue of being, I suppose, like. Lo- like long and narrow, you know, in, in that you kind of set you set a uh, like setting a setting a film there, setting a you know a play there, or anything where you have to physically depict a space that's so different than putting it in any other type of building, and a constant sense of motion, and all of that like sung true. And I yeah, I did like those bits, but just for me, it just didn't make up enough for you know the kind of the the lack of tension and the lack of any depth with with a lot of the other areas of the book like i mean that's the train journeys maybe what like the last third of the the book last quarter maybe so he's got a lot to do in my eyes at least by that point to make up for what what's gone before and yeah those bits are fun but again i i think the the part in the train has uh you know like like it's it sums up the kind of 
the the lack of the, the lack of tension throughout, right? Like so, so there's a, a sequence of, a breakdown to you that sums up to me. So first we have the uh, we have the bit where uh, the train is stopped by Edith Nesmith, the the little girl who's uh, Vimes or Vimes Moist advises to take up novel writing because uh, railway uh, novels are getting very popular, which is a tribute to Edith Nesbitt, the author of The Railway Children, and a kind of nod at the advancements that the railway brings that, like, it, it did kind of um, railway travel did uh, hugely change, I suppose, book publishing because you had this market for cheap books people could buy to read on these long journeys that, and I, I like, I you know, that's harmless enough, that bit, like, it's, it's you know, it's, it's grand... I can imagine people being a bit perplexed if you didn't get the Edith Nes- Nesbitt reference. It might feel a bit like drawn out for a, a um, otherwise meaningless scene, but it's fine. But immediately after that, right, you had this sequence that for me encapsulates the, the lack of tension. So we get continually provided with a potential problem that could be really interesting. It could put our characters in some peril, but it's sort of solved before it can take off. So first, Moise sees that the low king has gone walkabout from a safely guarded carriage, and he gets worried, thinking, you know, oh my God, where is he? Do his bodyguards, do anyone else on the train know he could get assassinated? Then we see the low king is just at the front of the train with Simnel. Okay, so, like, there's, there's actually no problem. He's not in any danger. Then the low king, with his, or horror rather, good night vision, spots that the flyer that's gone on ahead of Iron Girder to, I think, to, to bring the uh, the parts to, to build the track further on down has been derailed. So you have a, what could have been a big problem where they have a derailed train ahead of them, but it's already been spotted before it poses any danger to them. Then we have the problem where on the flyer. Uh, Cheery is kind of acting as a body double for the low king and going ahead with some of the guards to distract the the grags and their their hired assassins. So then we okay, so we're given presented with the problem of the flyer has been derailed. Ah, don't worry, it doesn't pose any threat to Iron Girder. The low king spotted it. There's no moment of like Ned Simnel one or Dick Simnel rather wondering, oh shit, can I can I break the train in time? You know that kind of like classic uh, sort of train peril thing of you're pulling on the brake and there's a screech of metal as the slowly grinds to a halt and maybe it's going to hit the obstacle up ahead or maybe you're going to get stopped now there's none of that but we do have the moment thinking shit the flyer's been derailed what about cheery what about those people on board those members of the watch supporting us that we like are they in trouble are they like is the train on fire are we gonna have to rescue them the low king jumps out like runs headlong towards it vimes tackles her down it's like ah don't worry it's fine i had instructions to get out if anything like that happened so it's like, oh no, there's, there's, you know, like you had this half a second of thinking, oh, maybe some of the characters are in peril, the train's on fire. No, no. Then we get back to the train, and Simnel worries that the sabotage of the water cranes is going to stop the, is going to slow down the, the train, and they won't be able to make it back in time. And then they encounter these gnomes. It's a nice throwback to early Discworld. Remember, Swire is the gnome that, um, uh, two flower and, and rinsewind met in the forest but it's like the problem is then instantly solved it's like oh you're worried about water don't worry we got water and we're happy to cooperate with you here's the water off you go you know <laughs> so you have this like sequence where it's like a succession of potential dramatic uh conflicts potential like obstacles for our characters to overcome potential peril for them to be in it's like continually neutered over and over again you know it's almost like like almost feels like satire, like something he'd do earlier. Like like it's it's the reader keeps anticipating this. Well, it's like ah no, I just mess with you. Like I'm not I'm not going to give that to you. But it's not really because I don't think it's intentional and there's nothing satisfying that emerges from it. Like there's nothing kind of 
there's nothing we get in return for having these potentially exciting moments of like desperately trying to stop a moving train or rescue people from a boarding train. Like there's nothing we get in in lieu of them because that drama has been subverted, you know? Okay, in response to that, uh, yes and no, basically. <laughs> um, I, I, I completely see your point. There are some bits, what you described, I agree with, and some that I don't. Um, the one I'm going to hone in on because I had the exact same reaction to was the gnomes. The gnomes is a section which, when I first read it, I hated because, as you said, it's as you're racist against gnomes. Well, I mean, that's always been the case, and you know that, and you promised you wouldn't say it here. But <laughs> the problem with that section when I read it first is, as you said, it is over far too quickly. I think there's about three, four pages, maybe, maybe more, where we're just suddenly, oh, there's gnomes, and you'd think. Like, I know that we are living on the Discworld at this point, and everyone should be aware that there are magical creatures around, but you never get the sense that Moist is overly familiar with gnomes and that he would have ever met them before. So you'd think that there would be... You'd think that they'd be more significant to the plot, but they're just kind of there. And that's a little frustrating because it it kind of just seems like a bit of a cameo. But what I... Conclusion that I came to, and I'm going to admit straight up that it's very easy to argue against this, but it's what justifies it for me, is that because this is the last book, and I know... I don't know if Terry Pratchett knew this would be his last, like, Discworld, Discworld, well, his grown-up Discworld book, but it kind of feels a bit like like a final lap, a victory lap kind of thing of the Discworld, because, I mean, the entire plot of it is, you know, from the very beginning, the very first book, The Colour of Magic, we have established the Discworld as this fantasy land with barbarians and fairies and dragons, and we have seen it slowly progress from that towards something much more technologically advanced and something more akin to, like, uh, modern days, like modernity. We've had, like, the uh, the newspaper, the clacks, uh, the bank, the mint, the post office, and now the railroad, and it feels like this is the last modern obstacle to be overcome, and it certainly feels that way because it's going from Ankh-Morpork and covering like such a massive amount of land on the... Like, I haven't checked the Discworld maps, but I don't know how far Uberwald is from uh, Ankh-Morpork, but I think it's a fair distance. I think it's like over at least over halfway across the disc. So mm-hmm. if I view it that way, as this, this, like, this is some sort of victory lap, kind of celebrating everything the Discworld has done to this point... Okay, I realise just as I'm saying that now that it does kind of fail on that because there's a lot more points to be made, like a lot of things that aren't brought up then. But you could see that as a celebration of the origins of the Discworld. And for me, where it succeeds is in the moment where they have to cross the bridge. And the bridge that's too weak that they can't cross over and it's not exactly clear how they get across the bridge. Like, we do know that golems are involved. We know that somehow or other... We know that Moist has gotten the golems to, like, tunnel their way to this point on the disc. But it's not immediately clear how they get the train from one side of the cliff to the other. And while initially that frustrated me a little, in hindsight, I love that. Because it's so ambiguous and it's kind of a little suggestion that, hey... There's still a little bit of magic here that can't quite be explained. And I just love the imagery of this train, this symbol of modernity, 
just flying across the cliff onto the other side, like something that could only happen in a fantasy setting. It's... I'm not going to lie that it has its flaws, but I think there's so much imagery and so much like really beautiful imagery and beautiful ideas at play here that I'm willing to forgive a lot of them. And I completely understand why you can't. I do get that. I completely understand that. But... I'm just feeling nostalgic today, okay? I'm feeling sentimental about all this, and it works for me. That's my argument. Oh, I'm a sentimentalist robot, um, but uh, <laughs> and it doesn't compute with me. <laughs> but well. uh, see, I, 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 I see some of your points, but I would kind of... Two things there. I mean, I would divide the bit with the gnomes from the sequence I uh, outlined earlier. Like, I feel like... Like, like my problem with that whole sequence isn't that we end up meeting gnomes in the forest and they get a, you know, kind of nicely ingratiated into the modern world of the railways. I kind of like that because you're right, it is a throwback to early Discworld and showing how this whole world is modernizing now. I do think there's something a team potentially unexplored in that, like they say they just want to be left alone. But then they're kind of brought into this world, this modern world, that they don't really understand. Like, they ask, what's remuneration? And it's just kind of presented as, like, they'll be better off this way, like, with money and jobs and products and things. And it's like, well, would they? You know what I mean? Like, it's, 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 I suppose we have this issue in the real world, but, you know, you have those tribes in the Amazon and other places like that that we're aware of that are untouched by a lot of modernity. And I don't know the, the kind of ethical debates around this, but it seems like we kind of leave them untouched, you know, other than maybe, you know, whatever people going, uh, documentarians and stuff going in to research them. But it's not like we take them from the Amazon and bring them to Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo or somewhere. And like, you'll be better off here with, you know, a job and a car and so on. So I do think there's something a little unexplored, underexplored there that like, as, you know, modernity here is presented as like an unalloyed good. Like it's for the better of disc- betterment of this world, for the betterment of everyone in it. And the people like the gnomes and the goblins will be much better off if they are a part of that rather than continuing to live outside it. And I'm not saying I entirely disagree with that. I just think there's more to it that could be explored that isn't really. But, you know, whatever. The scene itself is like like a kind of like harmless bit of fan service and a sort of like, again, helps helps uh, emphasize those themes of, of modernity and so on. But the, the bit prior to it with the whole like the flyer derailing, I, I think you could still have a lot of drama there and then have the bit with the gnomes as like a breather after that drama. You know what I mean? Like I... I the the fact that the part with the gnome succeeds on some level to me doesn't make up for the fact that the part immediately fought prior to it was this succession of potentially interesting things that were instantly you know nipped in the bud. Like I I think you you could have the two of them. You know you we could have a dramatic scene where Moist and the King and Vimes are searching through the flaming wreckage of the fire for Cheery and the others. And then afterwards they go and meet the gnomes and we have a bit of a breather. Not unlike the kind of technique you were describing with Moist on the Roof of it's this moment that doesn't really progress the plot, that where nothing really happens, but just sort of emphasizes the characters being themselves at ease and kind of allowed to unwind to a certain degree. Well, that's fair enough. But actually, just while on that topic, you were saying that... Um that this idea of like modernity just being like inarguably like a good thing that people should accept into their lives and you're right there 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 is room for that to be explored more so but one place way that it is explored is in the fundamentalist dwarfs the uh, the grags 
how now they're kind of the key antagonists on this. And one thing I quite liked about it was that although Ardent is it Ardent? I'm trying to remember. Is he the the yeah, yeah. yeah? So while he, you could say that he is the key antagonist of this story, he doesn't feel like that. He kind of seems like a figurehead to a movement as opposed to like the central antagonist, like the mastermind behind everything. And I quite like that. This is something um, that we have discussed on plenty of the previous books, how Terry Pratchett has an issue when he's writing antagonists that he always presents them as this like someone who's always just better than the protagonist in every conceivable way and must be defeated ideally in an ideological and a physical way. And he almost always seems to... Uh, he, he usually gets the ideological part right, but when it comes to the actual overcoming in a physical sense, it's just usually a day ex machina or something stupid like that. In this one, I like it because it's because he's just a figurehead and it really is just the masses that they have to win over. It is largely just an ideological war that they're doing. There is a physical part of it, obviously, because they have that fight on top of the roof and the train and the entire process of getting to Uberwald is the physical overcoming of the opposition. But again, this is against like a force, not a single person. And that's why I thought that was exceptionally well done. Um, Also, on top of that, like, there is this idea that, you know, people who are fundamentalists are just naturally bad people. But there's a couple of times throughout the book where fundamentalism is explored as not being an entirely bad thing. The um, the other dwarf, uh, the one who's in prison, I forget, is Albrecht Albrechtson, I think is his name. He has this great, he, he is kind of described as a fundamental dwarf. We saw him in The Last Elephant. He was basically the opposition to Reeson uh, for the low kingmanship. But he lost to him because obviously they need to over... Like, because Reese Reeson was a forward-thinking dwarf. He was progressive and uh, Albert Albertson was regressive. He was uh, very much a fundamentalist. And we're seeing him very much holding on to a lot of fundamental ideals, but accepting the positive ones. Like, in a very important... Like, he doesn't change his character a huge amount, but one thing he does change is he accepts the positive changes that need to happen in order for dwarf dwarves and dwarfhood to progress in modern society. And that was something I thought that was quite well done. Thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't think it is, because, um, for one, again, coming back to the lack of traumatic tension, like... R- Albert Albertson supporting Reese Reeson is in this quiet, quiet way is like part of the climax of the fifth elephant. It's like them reaching a compromise despite their political and ideological differences that, that stops this essentially war from, from breaking out amid the dwarves. Here at the start, Reese Reeson makes a big speech decrying the destruction of the clacks. Albrecht, Albu- uh, Albrecht Albrechtson. Yeah, it's a difficult name to say, isn't it? Publicly voices it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he immediately publicly voices his support for him. You know, so there's no question about like, oh well, these are both good people, but they have a lot of different ideas, and will they be able to cooperate? It's like no, from the very like the first scene we get with them, Albrechtson is like standing up in front of all of the other dwarfs and saying, yes, you're exactly right, Reese. You've got my backing. So there's never any question that like. Albertson will potentially 
I suppose, be like like that he'll be caught in the middle between Reese and the modernizers and Ardent and the fundamentalists, you know, which could be potentially something interesting. Now, I understand that like you, he would be wary of retracing the same ground of of the the conflict that was going on in dwarves in the fifth elephant of like, oh, will you know, Al, uh, uh, Albertson come over? But as I said, it's it just contributes to the sense of like lack of narrative tension, like the like oh, Arda, is there a sense of division in the dwarves? Not really, like, because Reese Reeson, the, the low king, who has the support of all of the other major political powers, of veterinary, of Lady Margalotta, of the Diamond King, he, or rather she, is for, uh, is in favour of the railway, and in favour of the other modernisation, the integration of goblins into Discworld culture, uh, more relations with trolls and, and humans, and so on. Albert, Albert, <laughs> again, it's a difficult uh, Albert <laughs> Albertson, like, potentially her biggest rival, is also in favour of it. And the only people who aren't are the Grags, who are just kind of regarded as like like a nuisance and a joke by everyone else. You know, they're never really a serious threat at all. And Albertson's, like him, like, like you said, he's a kind of a fundamentalist who learns how to appreciate some modern things. He certainly learns how to appreciate some modern things. We have, again, he's in favour of the railway. We have that scene where he kind of becomes friends with the goblin who's bringing food in his cell. How is he a fundamentalist? What is he... What traditional aspects of dwarfhood does he support that, say, Reese Reeson doesn't support? Um, I think he's... I Okay, I... You put me on the spot there, now, there's but there's nothing. There's nothing. Like, I think. Do, yeah, does, we're, doesn't we're he say? Told. Doesn't he say at some points that like he's still not not opposed to the idea, but he feels uncomfortable with the idea of like talking to trolls or humans. Like I don't think he says he's I opposed to it. I don't think but... so. That, like there, there's nothing really. Like we're told that he's like you know more traditional on the the spectrum of modernity to tradition than than Reese's, but. Like, there's no well, conflict there for him. There's there's no issue he's really, like, wrestling with his conscience about, thinking, like, oh, it's it's harder for me to square my, you know, long-held beliefs about traditional dwarf culture with the railway or with, you know, goblins, with dwarf gender, uh, uh, what would you call it, I suppose, dwarf gender roles. Like, he never has to struggle with any of this. We don't know, like, like he just has a label that says, like, this is a more traditional dwarf, but look, he can get along with modernity. But it's like, but how is he more traditional? Well, okay, can I can I make a suggestion here now? And uh, this is going to seem a little little bit of a stretch, but bear with me on this one. All right. So, I think that uh, I think that Terry Pratchett has made a very. Uh, I think he made a choice here with the dwarves in that he has made a lot of them seem very uh, easily interchangeable in a certain sense. In that, what I mean by that is, did you have any trouble remembering which dwarf was which in this book? Um, no, but that be, that's mainly a problem is that we don't get to meet an awful lot of them. Like you have, so you have Reese Reason. Mm. You have, a, what's his or her secretary name? Who oh, I have it here partner. somewhere. It's uh, I'll, it'd be uh, Aaron. Aaron. Yeah, yeah, Aaron. Um, we have ba- uh, Greg Bashfulson, who's like the progressive Greg we've seen from Todd. 
and mm. Albert Albertson, who's Reese's rival from uh, The Fifth Elephant, and Ardent, who is the villain from Todd. So, right. with the exception, I think, of Aaron, who it's possible may have been in another book, all of the named dwarf characters, we also get like Cheery in, in, in a little bit, are characters from an earlier book. So I had no mm. trouble discerning the, for, between them because they were all established from an earlier book. But in this book, they don't display an awful lot of character or substance. And that, I think, is actually a choice that he makes. It's a bad choice. The reason like, that like, I think well, he does well, why this... Why is it a good choice to make, to make characters seem interchangeable? So... At one point, so, as you said, the whole way through this, the Grags are kind of described as sort of a nuisance and that uh, they're just kind of hindering the progress of modernity by burning down the Klax Towers and trying to prevent the railway from going. As you said, Grag Bashfulson is also present, but he is a good Grag. And it's something that, because this is constantly reinforced throughout the book, that, oh, the Grags are doing this, the Grags are doing this, the Grags are doing this. And then you see... Craig uh, Bashfulson again and there's almost this brief moment where you have to be like oh that's right yeah Greg Bashfulson and he's a good Greg and it's it's basically the whole way through the book I think he's trying to blur the lines between good and bad and like true uh, you know positive views of modern uh, mod, uh, mod, modernity versus like uh, negative uh, views and he's also do- making that choice with the names as well well obviously this was previously but it works in this book's favor because they all begin with a i found it very very difficult to remember hang on which one was aaron again which one was albrecht blah blah blah, blah. because he mixes them all up like this and it's kind of difficult to follow you find it it's it's tricky to remember okay hang on whose side is that person on whose side is that person on and it's basically making it more complicated to discern who, where, where each person's alliances lie. And it's not as simple either as like good or bad, which I know you said that um, Albrecht doesn't have any really fundamental views. Uh, I think at some point in a very clumsy way, and I'll admit it's clumsy, I think it is said that, oh, well, he does have fundamental views. It is something as clumsy as that. But at least we know that he's not 100% on yeah, the side that's what I mean. of we're, we're uh, told he doesn't... But but he is one hundred percent on the side of it. Like like he, he the first scene with him, he stands up publicly, announces his support for Reese Reason. He is then jailed during but, the coup, lest he further support by Reese Reason. And all of his scenes with Ireland, he like says, "You're going to lose. Reese Reason's going to come back." And look look the the business of the names interchange purely subjective my experience i didn't have any trouble keeping up uh, keep, keeping names perhaps other readers had the same experience as you but i would say like if that's the way to kind of blur these lines it's the only way those lines are blurred because this is as black and white a conflict as we ever get in Discworld. like there's no one on the, on the fence about this right like you have the grags and ireland is the only one that gets named all of the others are just like faceless fundamentalists and then you have all of the other named dwarves and characters are in favor. Of but that means they could be anyone. But but that that is never played up in the book. Like that, there's no sense of where like Moise is on the train and he's thinking, you know, like okay, we get we get that scene where he talks to the dwarf on the train and he realizes one of them is an assassin because your man can't. Uh, I think he, the, the fellow's pretending to be a train spotter, but he like he he can't name whatever the stuff to do the specificities to do with the trains that the train sputters are obsessed by but there's no sense of like paranoia of like say moist or vimes looking at the dwarves around the low king and thinking 
oh, they say they support him, but, you know, maybe one of them is an agent from the Grags. Like, there's no sense of that. Like, all of these ideas about, like, oh, they're, you know, interchangeable. They're, like, all of those are in in the abstract completely. And and I think, like, the Grags... So, I, I get that there is... It is a queasy and perhaps morally questionable process to take an ideology like the Grags, which in, in this book is, like religious fundamentalism, a hatred of modernity, a repression of any kind of alternate gender roles, a rampant xenophobia and, and racism or speciesism. I get that it is a queasy, morally questionable process to try to depict that as like like a an attractive ideology or how that is attractive to people, you know, to try and kind of depict it as a... Uh, to get scenes where we see Ardent or the other Grags kind of like being able to really convincingly sway other dwarves as around to their sides but when you don't have that what you're left with is actually a really bleak view of people where the suggestion is that like with very little arguments of you know with very little of substance to say to this uh, to these modern developments that we're told in every other part of the book are unallied goods are great things with very little argument against that, the Grags can just instantly ferment hate. That, like, dwarves, and presumably, you know, we can argue this is, like, people in general, the view in this book is, are, like, really susceptible just to be, like, you know, oh, I thought this railway was fine, but now I am willing to become a suicide bomber and kill someone, you know, like, and kill people to prevent it because I hate it so much. Why do you hate it? I don't know. We're, you know, that, that that's going to be dealt with off-page. Like, I think we get one scene, but, like, Ireland going into a pub and kind of like, you know, trying to ferment discontent, like just slipping in words like, ah, oh, the trolls have it much better than us now. And they're like, oh, you're so right. But it's so shallowly done. So like, like there's nothing that seems like this would really convince people, you know, because again, this isn't convincing them to, to like, this isn't a minor matter, like convincing them to go out and just like vote for Ireland or something like it's convincing them to become to kill people and to put their own lives at risk, you know, to give up their livelihoods in the name of this dwarf fundamentalism. And, like, there's no effort to, you know, show the reader as to, like, why did, why other dwarves that aren't died in the wolf fundamentalists like Ardent are, would want to do this, you know? So we're just presented, like, you know, evil people can get, dopey sheep just to do whatever they want but at like the slightest suggestion they do they do have a couple of scenes where you know they show uh dwarfs being like interrogated by the grags and in some cases it's down to blackmail for like you know what they're going to do to their families and i'm not saying that this is like you know i actually having heard your point i do sort of agree with you now i have to say but just to in one thing to say in its defense they do have these uh moments where the Grags interrogate the dwarves like and um there, I remember there was one dwarf who was being blackmailed because I think he was talking to a troll and they kind of take him aside and say you can't be doing this and uh they threaten his family or something like that and there's another one who is just doing it for money gain uh he I'm trying to remember what it is he sells them Oh, he's selling them names or the lo- maybe it's the location of the train or something like that and he thinks oh well if they're going to pay me whatever I'll, I'll give you the names but then of course they kill him immediately afterwards so um, I, I, I don't think it's quite as shallow as you're saying but I do take your point it, it is quite abstract I, I, I'll accept that yeah actually. I mean look, yeah. look fair enough you're, you're right I did kind of breeze over there are those scenes but I, I would argue that 
to deal with this with sufficient depth, like like in a movement like this, yes, you would have people who are being cajoled in by threats. Yes, you would have people who are just in it for monetary gain. But presumably there must be, you know, people that just swayed to their sides. Like like in other books that have, um, like, like Pyramids is probably the best example where we see in like Dios, this figure who's determined to sustain this kind of stagnant way of doing things who complete is completely opposed to modernity but we get a real sense of why he wants that like of of, of this fear of the the jellababian culture being swept away you know in, in the tide of modernity and what would they be if they didn't have these traditions and we sort of get a sense of like why like the the systems and structures that that are in place within that culture that have sustained this this tradition even though it isn't you know, both like economically or, or uh, like socially, as as helpful to to citizens on a, on an everyday basis. And the fifth elephant again, we get these really interesting arguments where like Reese Reason, who is the modernizing figure, is still saying, putting at the volumes of like, oh, when people say modernize, they really just mean become more like Ankh Morpork. Like, is that what you want? You just want everyone to to you know just follow your way of doing things. And on the one hand, you think. Well, if their way of doing things means like you know more freedom and acceptance of like other cultures and other ways of life, then yes, you should follow that way. But on the other hand, you absolutely see his, you know, his his objections. Or again, I keep mm. tripping over the pronouns here because he was a he and that book, but he's a she. But in his book, her objections. Yeah. But you know, you know what I mean. We, those arguments are, are there, and they aren't really here. Like yes, we okay, we do get some scenes that show why certain people are working for the Grags, but there's no sense that anyone has really been swayed by their arguments or that they, they will sway people. You know, they just seem to hate modernity because someone has to be in this book to hate modernity, you know? And and those I scenes do. with Ireland coming mm. to Albrecht and, like, just, you know, being so easily unsettled and panicking and Albrecht being assured that, like, no one's going to support you and Reese Reeson's going to come back and restore justice to a dwarven society... I suppose nips in the bud any potential tension that like Ireland can develop some sort of support within the you know within the dwarven community for this. It's it's just sense like no, it's just him and a handful of others who are you know who have managed to kind of briefly gain power, but it's only ever going to be brief because there's no real risk of them swaying anyone on this. This might be. A somewhat over romanticized view of this now, and I'm just throwing this out there. This isn't something that I'm think uh, strongly believe or something, but I wonder if because I I was kind of I couldn't help but read this as like one of the last Discworld books. I wonder if this is supposed to be viewed as like the last triumphant sweep of like all these. Uh, negative viewpoints under the rug from uh, Terry Pratchett's point of view which is very very simplistic but maybe that was just like the way he wanted to kind of end things maybe because rather than think that um, all the dwarves uh, the, the dwarves that the Grags have swayed over to their ideology maybe the idea is this is something that was done prior to the book because we do hear about the Grags like the first time we hear about them is like oh the Grags have been doing this again so it is kind of implied that this is something that has been going on for a while so maybe the idea is like these are the last like you know uh, this is again just throwing this out there this is the from Terry Pratchett's point of view, these are the last like festering parts of the world, which are like still stuck in this uh, luddite view that we you know we need to stick to our traditional values. And the train that travels across the disc is like this shining beacon, which is just like you know 
clip like like Mr. Plough cleaning the snow of traditional fundamentalist values like off the side of the edge off the side of the disc and just like bringing the world into modernity oh no it's old Greg Winter what's that you lousy season <laughs> um, that's I, I think that that's a really fair point and we, we've seen dwarf society and disc society in general modernising for you know books and books and books so yeah you're right it makes sense that like the remaining cohort who are against this would actually be a small minority as opposed to maybe earlier books when there were more people in favour of that and there is yeah given you would imagine he's kind of aware this is going to be the last or one of the very last books yeah the idea of him just this kind of being a victory lap where they just like sweep the last of that away again there's something in that I would be on on board more with that if there was more of a sense of fun in this book you know, like if, like if this is, it right? Like I, I, I thought about this with the scenes with Vimes and Moist, where there's just no mm. tension at all. Like, no, like none of the kind of mutual mistrust that is there between those characters in uh, Going Postal and to a certain extent in Making Money. None of that that we we get between, say, like other protagonist characters like Vimes and William the Ward in The Truth, or Vimes and Veterinary. A lot of the times they're interacting. But nor is there, like, I'm like, okay, well, if you're not going to do that, this is going to be the extended victory lap where our heroes just kind of triumphantly romp home to modernity and freedom and tolerance. Like, have fun with it, you know? Give us give us the Yankmorepork Avengers on the train. Like, get, like, William and Satcharissa on there. Get the, the Unseen University faculty on the train. Maybe Rincewind is there, <laughs> you know? And they're all just, like, trading quips and we're having these little, like, fanboyish scenes where... Rincewind talks to you know um, Adora Bell for for a while, or like the librarian interacts with Detritus, or you know just like have have fun. Like there, there's there's none of that. You know it's just kind of like like any of the interactions with with Vimes and Mice are in service of this team of you know modernity and the Grags being this like horrible, outdated racists, which is all true and fair enough, but none of it needs to be said because these lads are represented in the books as like you know like as no threat as 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 like uh, as you said like as a tiny minority that are going to be swept away which would be grand if we didn't spend so much time talking about them you know if if so much of the like plot <laughs> so, of this book isn't built around getting back in time to stop them like if if they're not if they're going to be like kind of a villain but you know like a much more lower threat villain than we're used to dealing with, then they shouldn't be as big a part of the book as they are. The whole conflict between them shouldn't be. Like if this is just like a victory lap with with our characters, yeah, like trading quips, having a laugh, you're getting some like, you know, interesting character interactions. Like, yeah, maybe it wouldn't thrill me as much as some of the others, but that would be a lot of fun. Whereas it isn't this. It, it isn't that, you know? So just to clarify, you want the Discworld holiday special. That's what you wanted out of this book. I, I would I mean, I would have preferred what we got. Because this is kind of neither fish nor fowl, you know what I mean? It's it's neither, mm. like, uh, it feels strange to say a conventional Discworld book because there's so much variety in his settings and his teams and, and so on. But, I mean, conventional in the sense of, like, you know, we, we have a issues at the heart of it we have villains and protagonists representing different sides of those issues and we watch a struggle play out and to, to for that tension to work and for for us to be gripped that struggle needs to seem like a, a difficult one you know um mm-hmm. we we obviously don't get that because the grags are just so like 
limp wrist and shit as villains. Uh, <laughs> so if we're not going to get that, then yeah, this girl holiday special, you know, like I mean, I mean on, ba- on balance, like like may- like maybe a, like a more kind of conventional struggle, really well told, would would be a better book. But like you know, this is this is like one of the last ones. Though I wouldn't have begrudged them that. I wouldn't have begrudged them that kind of indulgence. But we we don't. We, we don't really get that. There's no... Like, the enthusiasm shines through with the bits about the trains, which I said, like, mm. those, that's my favourite bit, like, just the train as a setting. Also. But, yeah, with, like, having a, a last go with these characters, it, it isn't there. I wonder if maybe then there was a bit of a, like, he was being pulled in two separate directions in the way he wanted to do this book, because I feel like there is a little bit of that. Like, the, the whole idea of, like, a victory lap of the Discworld, like, I think that is kind of deliberate, because in particular, that scene where they cross over the cliff held up magically like by the golems that just sang to me that for me that was just perfect writing that particular section i love that bit but i feel like uh, and like so i do feel like there is merit to the idea that he is just trying to say okay guys we're going to have one last hurrah because that's how it feels when they're on the train because there's this like push like yeah here we go guys like everyone's kind of getting on for one last adventure. You even get this like, sensation that um, Harry King is like, even though he's a relatively new character, he's moving on to like, you know, pastures anew. Even the, I, I feel like you might have strong opinions about this relationship, but I feel like the relationship between Moist and Vimes is even like quite pronounced. And like the idea that they're kind of chummy is kind of a revolution in terms of Vimes' character who famously like doesn't seem to trust anybody. So it's quite interesting to see here that they're almost like pals. So I think there's merit in that, but I feel like he's also being pulled in the other direction where he feels this need to say some like really significant and what's the word I'm looking for? Like hot topic, make some hot topic observations on like modern society. And because those two don't mesh very well, that's why like for me personally, and I think this is just down to taste, I am willing to forgive a lot of the bloat for it because I quite enjoyed the section. The sections that I did enjoy, I thought were excellent. Um, But for you, it it didn't really gel, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, what you said there kind of puts your finger on it. But it obviously much more of an issue for me than you, Don. Yeah, there is a sort of sense of it being pulled in different directions. Like, it's about addressing these really weighty themes of modernity versus tradition and of globalization versus, like, insular cultures. And then at the same time also being this victory lap that's relatively free of narrative tension and of significant problems or hardship for our heroes. And as I said, like, if he just committed to it being a victory lap and just... Filled it, filled it full of fun. I mean, it would probably want to be shorter if you were doing it like that, but I, I think I yeah. could enjoy that, you know? And if he, mm. if he was able to do... I mean, the, the, those teams at the heart of it are teams he's done in other books to great effect, and they're not done as, as well here, and I just kind of, you know, feel like it's... But both of those things contribute then to work against one another, you know? Like, like the, mm. the, the attempt of a sense of a victory lap robs the like weighty question at the, the heart of it of any any sense of tension or any any sense of difficulty and uh similarly the kind of um question at the heart of it like this you know fun, religious fundamentalism suicide bombers essentially takes away from any sense of fun we might get i think too with characters like you said moist and vimes and, and I, I you know i i just said that I, there's no um 
none of the tension that's there what you have with earlier interactions with Moist and Violence between like a you know con man and a policeman essentially and the mm. mutual mistrust and I wouldn't again I wouldn't entirely mind if he was like you know what these characters have been through a lot They've, they're finally kind of liking one another now but we don't I mean we, we nominally get that because they don't argue but th- those characters don't sing off one another like Moist is I think one of the, the worst and most disappointing parts of this book because he's just essentially a a character that's quite vividly depicted in, in Making Money and particularly in Going Postal is just essentially a walking pair of eyes and ears for the audience here like his interactions with Vimes aren't interactions they're just Vimes talking to him about the themes of the book at length like look look back in it in your copy it's just like long monologues from Vimes at him that Vimes could be given to anyone you know and again that mm. feel completely unnecessary because it's like what he's He's just saying stuff that everyone in this book agrees with anyway, that we've already heard voice from a load of other characters, you know? Uh, I think it's... Yeah, it's just the the, the way Moist is used is... Um, I, I think, too, like... If you look at this book, right, and you can kind of roughly group it under the umbrella of, like, Discworld books about developments from our world, from round world, coming into the disc. And we have the early versions of that... Like uh, going post or not going postal, um, moving pictures and soul music, where developments from around the world come in and then go away, and the status quo is restored. And then we have the later ones where d- those developments, you know, cause ripples and changes within the disc world and so on. But key to all of those books is that normally our protagonists are really bound up in those in whatever the new development is, like Victor and Ginger in moving pictures they're not the most vivid protagonist Pratchett's ever written but they work within that book because they're so tied to the moving picture business like they're they become the biggest stars of it but they also find kind of meaning in their life like particularly Ginger I think the one of the parts of it that book that always sticks with me is her speech when she's talking about the tragedy of all the people who never found out what they really wanted in life all like the mm. you know blacksmiths in rural villages who could be whatever like amazing film stars that will never get to be like um the, the band in soul music and again soul music wasn't one we, we were crazy about you know it's it's relatively low down our list but like what works and it works because like the, the band in it are again so t- tightly tied to it you know initially you have they're all excited then you have Glaude and Cliff worrying about like Buddy that he's giving too much of his life to it right William DeWard when he starts the newspaper in the truth that's his I suppose his his philosophy his, his ethos in life like and again you have that great scene where him and Saturis are kind of de- de- debating like you do you give the people what they want or what you think they need in terms of what they should read about when they're, they ha- they're coming up against Dibbler's tabloid and then Moist and going postal right okay like part of that book is him learning to appreciate something more substantial than the previous con man profit driven life he had lived in seeing what the post office can do right but you also have just a narrative thing of like he's got a literal stay of execution like he's got to get this mm. right or veterinary will kill him so he is mm. he's completely invested in the post office and then in making money uh like like you know par- like that isn't quite as successful because he's uh he's not quite as bound up in it but he's still like like he's still i i you know you still get the sense of like he we we get those lovely scenes with him at start of making money where he's sort of gotten bored about how safe life has gotten so he does even though there isn't the same threat hanging over his head as there isn't going postal he still kind of throws himself into this task of fixing the bank with like gusto and enthusiasm and gets really involved and you know when he's having these arguments with, with Mr. Bent like there is a sense of 
I suppose that there's an argument to be had. Whereas here, he's referred to as like Mr. Railway, and it's like, what's he doesn't re- he isn't really tied down to it. Like you know, Harry King finances it, Simnel makes it, Moist markets it, but he doesn't have mm-hmm. a hard time marketing it because everyone loves it from the start. Any of the bits with the, the uh, landowners, as I said, how, are narrated in that weird past perfect way where it's all already happened, so you don't have to worry about him swinging these guys around to it. So, and, and it's also the question of, like, because he's become such a fixture in Ankh Morpork life, like, you don't really buy it when Veterinary gives him any veiled threats, you know, about, like, oh, Mr. Lickwick, you better do this. It's true. like, ah, oh, come on, he's not going to. And, like, and, and as well, it's because we've had so much of Veterinary up until this point, too. Like, it's the 40th book. In the earlier Watch books and the earlier Ankh Morpork books in general, he's more of an ambiguous figure. Like, we think. Well, maybe he, you know, he could kill someone. He seems pretty ruthless now. He's kind of cuddly at this point. Like we know, he's he's not really <laughs> going to do anything. So Moist is our protagonist, but like, and so he's the one tr- whose eyes we see this development working. But he has no real stakes in it. No real, well, I say no real commit, no commitment to it that differentiates him significantly from any other character in the book who is enthusiastic about the railway, which is everyone except the Grags. Hmm. I the way I read uh, Moist in this book is, if I'm being quite honest, as a bit of a lunatic. Like I, no, honestly, no, because you, like I said, because you know how I said that uh, when he gets up onto the roof of the train and just going like, yeah, I'm on the roof of the train. It's windy up here, yay! And how like I feel like that perfectly summarizes his character. I wasn't lying. Like I really do think that. He's like a thrill seeker, and like he obviously has a survival instinct. So obviously he doesn't want to do anything that could theoretically get him killed. He always wants to be on the edge, just on the edge, so that he's always like just about able to manage things going along. But he always wants to feel that thrill of almost like you know, oh, like you know what could happen. And the re that that's for me is what kind of kept this going. So. You know, it's it's those scenes where you know he's uh, experimenting with drugs, i.e., like the goblin medicines, like from that he's given from. I want to get the name right. Is it of the twilight of the darkness? Was that the name of the? I think it's of the Gob- twilight, the darkness. Is it? Hang on, I wrote, wrote it down here somewhere. Of the no, it's of the twilight of the darkness. Ha ha. <laughs> but um, yeah, so allegedly the goblin shaman who's like giving him all these experimental drugs, which uh, for me kind of was had a very vague allegory to say, suggesting that oh hey maybe like uh, medicinal marijuana is okay, you know maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for people to try all these experimental drugs, and you know like liberating all these goblins and like he he's literally just getting caught up in all these like uh modern or even postmodern crazes and just thinking like oh i see where you're coming from like he's he's almost a freewheeling philosopher of sorts like he's almost willing to take anything on to see where it goes and that's why he's able to be utilized in this way uh this didn't really work in making money in my opinion because Largely because that book basically just retread all the beats that Going Postal did. And for that reason, his character didn't really work there. It felt very safe, which kind of went against his character. In this one, it felt different. And I know you were saying that there aren't really any stakes. And I think in in a way, that kind of helps because he's still searching for that. You said there's like no stakes and there aren't really. I know what you mean. 
but he's like constantly searching. He's looking for something that will kind of threaten or something that will be wild and crazy. And that might be another part of the reason why he gets up on the roof of the train. It's like, come on, come at me, guys. That kind of mentality, if you know what I mean. That now you don't have to buy that. I don't I'm not saying you have to, but that's how I read him personally. But one thing you did say and I want to talk about as well is one thing I really didn't like about this book and that is Veterinary and the way he is portrayed in this book. I I did originally like the whole thing about him getting upset about uh crossword puzzles and feeling really challenged by this allegedly this little sweet old lady who makes the crossword puzzles like in the, somewhere in downtown at Moorpork. But I really, really disliked how he'd have like basically a temper tantrum and how Moist was able to point out words that he uh, apparently couldn't figure out. And just how, on the one hand, very chummy they were, like almost too chummy. And then at the same time, he would flip over to being almost overcompensating in how tyrannical he could be. Like saying, you know, how you have to get this done. No excuses. And like anytime he'd have an interaction with Vimes, he would never go that far. He would be like, Vimes, you have to understand this. He'd speak in a logical manner in a way that you could understand. And there'd be veiled threats, but you could usually see his point of view. Here he's just a tyrant. I did not enjoy that in this book, I have to say. Yeah, it, it was a bit that kind of... I, I was sort of intrigued by it first. Like you do get the sense of him cracking under pressure a bit like not being as unflappable and omnipotent as he previously had been as you said with getting a crossword wrong he seems a lot less sure about the railway than he has about previous developments like obviously in the other mm-hmm. moist books it was him that drove these new developments through putting moist in a position to to innovate them and you know after that humorous enough scene at the start of the truth where he's like you know is this possessed by demons is this like he, he's kind of reading the uh, printing press in the, in the terms of how we've seen the stuff in soul music and moving pictures. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and once he realizes that isn't the case, he kind of, you know, he, he gets to grips with it. Here he seems like much less sure about what the railway will mean. And then when he, he leans on his tyrant status much more uh, directly, I suppose, by threatening, overtly threatening Moist to do this seemingly impossible task of building the, the railway to, to Uberwald. And I thought that's like a potentially interesting acknowledgement of that we kind of get occasionally of that while veterinary seems this benevolent genius dictator, the Ankh-Morpork political system is far from perfect. And even if it is a genius figure like him at the top, having someone like that having unchecked power is probably not something we would want in our own world, you know. And I thought like, okay, that's you know, that's kind of interesting enough. But for one, while that doesn't ring false or anything uh, against what we've seen in the books it's always more interesting to see veterinary have to kind of get to grips with like politics to manipulate or cajole other people's around him to develop a i suppose like a support for a particular venture don to just use unchecked tyrannical powers to say well do this because i'm in charge you know that's just fundamentally less interesting to read about and the other thing too is it's it's sort of never really discussed in the book like the railway is a private endeavor like harry king is financing it he's a mm. private citizen it's you know it's it's not a state-owned railway but veterinary can seemingly dictate it at will like and just say well, well you're going to give up building it to Quirman, now you're going to build it to Uberwald. 
I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't want pages of pages about like political economy of like you know state ownership of transport systems versus private ownership but it just felt like a kind of like a clunky misstep to me like we you know we established early on this is harry king's thing veterinary is of course aware of it uh and, and you know like he is of everything that goes on in Agmorepork, but later veterinary can wield a really direct hand in how it works. There, there is a bit early on, I now I can't remember the exact details of it, but there is a bit that says, uh, you are right, it's clunky because I can't remember the logistics of this, but essentially in some roundabout way, veterinary does own some stocks in the railway department. So he, he does actually own a part of it somehow, but as you said, it must be clunky because I just I cannot remember how how they explain it. Yeah, and it also the the business of like veterinary revealing that he's Stoker Blake at the end of the book and was on the train yeah. is like a really uh, bad, disappointing reprise of the bit at the end of um, Nightwatch where he reveals mm. he was part of the the fight because it's like this character Stoker Blake. It's like he's just so transparently just introduced for you know, mm. like like so so we'll get this cool reveal of oh, I was veterinary all along, uh, and it, it also brings to mind a lot of questions where I don't want to dwell too much in this because this is real pedantic like yeah, she's playing scratchies ribcage, <laughs> but the the little bit we get about Stoker Blake kind of implies like he's this figure who's worked on the railway for ages, like, and is this, mm. well, for ages in as much as anyone could, because it's still in its infancy, but that he's developed this legendary reputation. So when Veterinary reveals it's him, you then get thinking, hang on, so was it always him? So, like, has he has this plan involved him, like, for, like, weeks and weeks going to work, like, stoking the boiler of a train, presumably for, like, hours, presumably working all, like, eight-hour shifts, stoking the boiler, all in service of, like, that he can be secretly on the train later when Moist is. So is he just like away from the office? You know, Drumnock comes in mm. and there's like a, you know, like a back in five minutes side, but he's gone for like eight hours while he works this other job stoking the boiler. Guess so. <laughs> I think my main issue with this in this book is that Veterinary is a character who Terry Pratchett always, rightfully so, has always kept at arm length arm length to maintain his mysticism like we're never really like he just seems like almost a perfect character and almost seems inhuman which would be boring except that like we know he's human and there's like tiny flaws in his character like absolutely minuscule like the whole thing with the crosswords but because he's kept at arm length and like we always have that sense of mysticism like we don't understand him as a human being he's just this like tyrannical figure who's like really interesting in just the way he manipulates people that works or you can have a character who is human who has flaws and that can work as well but once you take one someone who like uh, whose backstory and like character is kind of shrouded in mystery and suddenly makes them human very quickly not very quickly but like advances his character in like a significant way in a very short amount of time it loses a lot of his mystique and makes him less interesting uh that it, that's personally how i can't felt about it like, because he has had these moments before where he's been like the whole the whole bit where um he couldn't think of a word that in the crossword that um, what's her name had developed that didn't really ring true to me at all it didn't seem like something that he would get so hung up on 
And similarly, I didn't really see him as the kind of character who would like force death threats on like one of his civil servants because basically he wanted to get the ride from a vampire over an Uberwald, <laughs> which <laughs> which is I, I mean I think that may be the first time that a turn of phrase has ever been used in Discworld fandom, and you know, after <laughs> after forty plus episodes, if that's our main contribution to the discussion, I I think we can we can go off and the sunset happy <laughs> is the victory lap yeah but it doesn't it doesn't ring true does it you know like no I, no and I, I mean I, I completely agree with you in that like he is very much a character you've kind of got to handle with kid gloves because of that like it's almost superhuman competence in, in every area you know you, you've got to find a reason not to foreground him too much otherwise he sort of I don't know like, like distorts the whole the whole plot and what, what we're seeing like he either comes across as too human or not human enough, you know. And if he if he's like not human enough and super competent, then we've got like no real reason for anyone else to be in the you know book doing anything. And if he's too human, it kind of then I don't know disappoints us from the kind of Bond villain turned good, omnicompetent genius we like seeing him flash up as in in you know bits here and there and in, in the background of other books. Hmm. Also, in this book, we found out that um. So one thing uh, we learned that uh, Moist has married uh, Spike. What's her name? Adora, Adora Bell. Yeah, uh, that that was interesting, but not as interesting as. And I had to look this up because I wasn't sure before. Apparently, Sakarissa and William DeWord got married in in a previous like unheard book. There's a point where like uh, I think William DeWord talks about his wife, and like I had to look this up on a couple of websites because I wasn't sure if it was ever mentioned. But it is kind of just in a casual sort of way imply that they got just got married off page which i was a little bit disappointed about because i quite liked their relationship the way it was at the end of the truth and it was sort of implied that they were just working together as partners so i, I don't really f- didn't really feel there was a need to have that in there personally like it's not huge it's just kind of an aside and I'm like oh so they did get married okay but it's just a very minor thing that i didn't really like in this one yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it's that sense of, like, the, the sense you get at the end of the truth is that they are romantically interested in one another, but they're both so committed to being journalists that they realise they don't really have the time to pursue anything mm. much more than a professional relationship. You know, you have that moment at the end where I think they're about to go out on a date or something, and then something happens, so they run off to report it. So I suppose, in a way, like, it makes sense in the same way that we see characters progress up the ladder of the watch-off page, you know, like Angua and people like that becoming captain, and you think oh yeah, of course, like she's really competent, like it sort of makes sense that you would it makes sense that after they've you know, established a paper and got more comfortable and used to their role as journalists and maybe have more resources on their hands in terms of other reporters, that they'd be able to find time to you know, pursue their romantic interest in one another, so it didn't ring untrue to me or anything, I it didn't bother me, but I could see people being disappointed in that, like, the what they're, the situation they're left with at the end of the truth is a more, I suppose, unusual and potentially interesting relationship than just a conventional happy marriage. And maybe, you know, I, I, I could understand why people might feel disappointed that just sort of unthinkingly meandered in that direction, uh, you know, as a matter of course, off page. Hmm. Yeah, um, what did you think of the whole 
this the the whole idea of Iron Girder being like possessed or being a goddess thing at the end. That was an unusual section to have at the end. I I like it, but I think it's kind of underwritten as an idea in general. Like it's certainly in yeah. keeping with what we've seen in the disc throughout the entire you know series of like belief cre you know shaping reality of anthropomorphic personifications and you know like ideas kind of gaining sentience of their own but it's sort of hard to see what the significance of the sentience of iron girder is you know like just yeah. like she presumably through everyone's embracing of the railway it sort of created this kind of goddess of the railway like why is that important beyond that just being you know, it happens and you, you kind of click in your head like, oh, this is this world. Of course, there would be, you know, the existence of the railway would then create a space for a goddess of the railway to, to fill it. Makes sense. But, you know, in terms of thematic richness or kind of like underlying ideas, it's it, I, I didn't know. Like, I didn't think there was a lot to it. Uh, like, I sort of felt that scene where um, she kills the dwarf saboteur that's trying to sabotage the Like, it's like the engine is able to kind of suck him into it, is impressively gruesome. Like, the, the yeah. scriptures we get of his bones, but I really liked it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I, I feel like then you have Nobby and Colin kind of allude to the fact that the engine is getting sentience. And I sort of felt like, in other books when this is happening, like, okay, maybe this is him displaying an awareness of the conventions of these things in the same way that, like, people watching horror films nowadays joke about how stupid it is for characters to say, hey, let's split up. So you have characters in horror films not doing that. Mm. Sometimes making direct reference to the fact that, you know, if this was a dumb horror film, we'd just split up. So maybe he's like, okay, we've had Discord books where you have this kind of uh, sentience, mystical stuff, sentience developing in an inanimate object, mystical goings on, and characters are sort of, you know, suspicious or don't believe it. Uh, and of course it happens so here in the 40th book even the likes of Colin and Nobby are kind of getting savvy and saying oh this is what's going on you know mm. that would be kind of fun I, I mean I would like if a little more attention was drawn like you can imagine Colin and Nobby kind of teasing out this thought process of like oh hang on this always happens like this we don't really get that and I kind of felt that like people like them just noticing that this is happening is in place of it happening meaning something you know like like the the engine kind of mm. develops sentience over the course of the book people notice it happening rather than it advancing ideas in any way or it changing yeah like we get one interesting bit where moist and it's kind of implied dick simnel have this really uh hor you know silent horrified gaze they think oh the engine is becoming alive and it loves <laughs> it loves it loves Dick. <laughs> well, we are suddenly a PG thirteen rating has to <laughs> yeah. be added to this podcast. Yeah, um, was, but they get worried that it will uh, it will lash out against uh, Emily, mm. Harry King's niece, who, who uh, Dick is stepping out with, and it doesn't. But like Moist kind of thinks, like is looking at Simnel who hasn't said anything, and I think, oh, you thought the same thing as me. Like this was really worried you. And I thought, like, okay, is there something there? Like, is, is there... Mm. Are we going to kind of have a thing where it's, like, Simnel, up until this point, has devoted his whole life to the railway, 
now that the railway is becoming a success, it's kind of opening up other avenues for him, like socially, romantically. And is Iron Girder's sentience and kind of jealousy against Emily going to kind of stand for this conflict in Simnel of like, you know, okay, I have some, my whole life building you, but there's got to be more to my life than you. I, you know, mm. I want to have fun and I want to start a family. I want to, you know, like, my, and, and him to kind of reach a compromise with the engine about that. Like, oh, I'll always love you. And look, the whole world is opening up to this. And we we don't really get any of that at all. But like, that was the one place where I kind of got interested and thought it was going, so, you know, somewhere in that direction. Yeah, I um I liked almost all of it, but the one place it fell down was the very last scene where the engine talks. I felt like if they had just cut that, like I felt that was a very clunky bit to just throw in at the end, and I felt like that was, I felt like there was an idea in place here when Terry Pratchett was writing it, and towards the end, like when he was coming up to the conclusion, he wasn't quite sure how to resolve it, and he just threw that in like very hastily because I felt. If he had left this the point where the train actually is talking too moist, if he just left that out, there would this there'd be this sense of ambiguity of like the train, like what was it actually like you know possessed by a spirit? Did, was it like a small god or a demi god possessing this thing, or is this just like modernity and something that we don't quite understand and we need to understand like in order for us to progress? Like this is the balance between modernity and fantasy that. Uh, the Discworld books have always been striving towards and leaving it ambiguous would have been much more preferable in my opinion because as soon as you give a voice to it it's kind of rooting it a bit more strongly in the fantasy setting even though the entire plot of this is about modernity so again it's a it's the plot and the themes of the book being pulled in two separate directions and it just in this one it just doesn't quite in that sense it doesn't quite work i like everything about it except that last scene and it frustrates me that it's there because if it was just taken out just almost surgically removed it'd be fine it's just that last scene which really uh, irritated me yeah i mean i see what you mean and that like the if it's going to appear directly you feel it should have a lot more to say like mm. if it didn't appear directly this kind of like very very vague ambiguous like hey you know we've got magic and technology would be enough whereas because it appears directly you feel like there there should be more depth meaning to the train gaining sentience uh if, if it can you know tell us what it what it's for to go back to the bit that you mentioned earlier with the goblin potion for me that really illustrated like how moist is such a poor fit and poorly used as a protagonist in this book because like for one it kind of feels like a narrative shortcut like it's like you you get to this stage where you've got to write in a bit of like physical conflict but you've got one of your protagonists in moist who unlike vimes unlike even the witches who is really unused to active conflict like i think that struggle he had with mr grail or grail in gung postal is the only time we see moist throw hands up until that point um so he just gets given the potion and it's like Popeye's spinach like he just you know is instantly able to defeat these dwarves without again like no tension no in fact we don't even get the fight scene we just get him given the potion <laughs> and then we flash forward and it's like well done you beat them you know um, which again speaks to this lack of tension throughout that really annoys you but it's also like why why have this fight at all if you're going to have to resort to this like shortcut of this kind of magic potion that's never been mentioned before that you know doesn't really serve any greater significance in it 
And then it seems like we we kind of there might be something interesting there when because Vi- our Maestrader has killed those dwarves, he's become marked as target by the Grags. And unlike Veterinary and Vimes, he isn't kind of used to this physical peril, so he gets really worried. And, and there might be something there, like, you know, oh, in this this one moment of madness, Moist took this potion, and now he's way in over his head. But, like, he's really quickly assured by Veterinary, by, even bizarrely by Adora Bell, who's like, that's ah, fine, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. Those Gregs aren't going to kill you. <laughs> It's grand. Like, <laughs> so we're, we're left with like, oh, you know, like, is my stint over his head? Not really. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really feel that way about the whole goblin potions thing that I kind of felt, again, this is leaning into my ideology that uh, Moist is basically a philosophical lunatic and he's just like willing to take on, like, try anything, give anything a go. And because... I'm kind of viewing him as a university student of sorts, you know, uh, you know, willing, open to all avenues and still like ch- trying to figure out his role in life. For this reason, he's kind of completely okay with uh, trying these ab- like insane, obscure drugs. And they, they just come out of nowhere. Like you said, like it's this is something that's never been mentioned before, this concoction. But like that's usually how you're introduced to it. Well, in certain some media portrayals that's kind of how you're introduced to a drug like here try this thing it's called whack give it a go and uh you know who knows what'll happen um that's just just how i viewed it anyway so i can i can understand yeah. your point of view as well i like i, I don't i won't begrudge you your interpretation of the moist being this freewheeling philosopher i but i just feel like i i feel like that that's a lot of legwork on your behalf to get to that interpretation that you couldn't like look fair enough you do it and, and you I was high at the time that was obviously why I came to that conclusion <laughs> there you go. But what I mean is like I, I feel like you could hardly argue that this is the impression most readers will get from this because there's nothing really to point us in that direction like yeah all this stuff happens to him but it kind of feels like it happens to him in that way of like uh, sort of those washed out early protagonists um, of you, you know, you, you read early, like, say, like, 19th century novels where the, the protagonist is just kind of bounced around between all these events and they don't really have a, much of a, mm. a character of, of themselves. To me, that's what Moist feels like here. And it's all the more disappointing because he was quite a vivid character in the previous books. And, and what you said, your point about, like, him being open to experimentation, I think could be this really interesting take on him like the way we get at the start of making money where he's breaking into his own office because he's so bored with the stability he's reached in life we have the places the the pieces for that idea are in this book like of him just taking this random potion him dancing on top of the train that he is in this really comfortable family life with Adora Bell and with like they have like a maid and a butler and all this rest but we never get any of that. We never get him ruminating on it, even for a few minutes. You know, him kind of wondering, like, like him wondering, is he happy now that he's got such a stable lifestyle with, uh, you know, Adora Bell? When Veterinary charges him with like this seemingly impossible task of building the railway on pain of death, he's terrified. But is it kind of thrilling because that's the that's the sort of thing that Moist chases after? We don't really get any of it, you know. Stuff just happens to him. He just kind of walks around and stuff happens and it never really poses any threat to him or the people around him or anything like that, you know? Yeah, I think this is just the the victory lap and serious story again pulling in opposite directions and just like... Uh 
detracting from that sense. Um, I, I I do get where you're coming from. It's yeah. I think this is just one of those places we're going to agree to disagree. Uh, but I do take your point 100%. And I know when we're ranking this, I'm probably going to end up conceding because I think you've made some really valid points to that effect. Yeah, I think uh, that's that's. Oh, no, look, look, that. look, like, I mean, this has been a more interesting podcast, I think, for the fact that you enjoyed this one more than I did. I know it's mm. probably more interesting to listen to than if we both had the... Uh, same opinion on it. And Reaper always, Man was great, wasn't it? God, we love Reaper Man. That yeah. was a great book. <laughs> well, okay, okay, on Reaper Man, because this is what would point I, I think is it. So, Dick Simnel being Ned Simnel's son is both this again mm. part of this sort of yes. final victory lap, like you know, like tying all different parts of this world together. Grand, love that. Also, makes sense. You know, he's he's this engineering character. But I find it interesting that in Reaper Man, Ned Simnel representing modernity was seen as a much more ambiguous thing or thing. like mm-hmm. when he makes the combine harvester and death is horrified by the idea of the inhumanity of this machine just doing a job that had previously done by people that people cared about and you have the like obvious thing of him seeing the grains of the stalks of corn oh. like human souls and that they should be done one at a time and with great care and he has the race against where he's cutting them all once the machine is cutting them all from an agricultural point of view, a practical point of view, much more efficiently, but from his kind of humanistic point of view, there's something being lost in that progress. Like, yes, maybe this will be handier for the farmers, but something is lost in this drive towards modernity. Hmm. And we don't get any of that here, you know what I mean? That's there, true. There's no sense that, like, and hey, I love trains. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying he should, he should make a big case of, like, you know... Why, tra- why, why trains are actually bad and Dick Simnel's are, you know, deluded or something <laughs> like that, but I just mean, I think it'll be, I was so aware of that because of the, the reference to Reaper Man, I'm like, it would be so much more interesting if there was someone voicing mm. like, interesting op- like, how would you put it, uh, like, you know, racism and hatred of, of modernity opposing the railway mightn't be a defensible position, right? Mm. But feeling reluctant or ambivalent or pessimistic or afraid of progress is. It's something we all and feel now. You know, do you know what's really funny about that, actually? Can I just very, very quickly, yeah, yeah. I just want to interject one point, is one way that this is always portrayed in modern media, like when people say, like, oh, yeah, no, uh, modern life is ruining the way people talk uh, or how people communicate. And you'll always see, like, it's almost always, like every time the same image it's like people on a train or on a bus looking at their phones right that's constantly an image that is like fed into us and say oh look how modern life is ruining our ability to communicate and yet almost the exact same scene is given to us in this book but it's portrayed in a really positive way because he says that um when you're on a train it was when he's uh apprehending the uh spies and he's asking him some questions and he says uh before like in his internal monologue he's saying like oh somewhere along the line he's not sure how it happened but there was this unspoken rule that generally speaking you wouldn't you know annoy other passengers or like uh, talk to them or annoy them or anything like that and like yeah that is nice but that's a nice way of looking at it there's also like this sense that like if it was in someone else's hands, they could have portrayed that as like, okay, everyone's going to go into their own little bubble and that's it. Obviously, they don't have smartphones there, so it's harder to get that point across. But it's kind of, it's going on the same tracks, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, it's it's interesting how they have the opportunity to portray something in a somewhat ambiguous light, but it's just like 
completely optimistic. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead now from what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. And, uh, like, we get, say, stuff like that nice little scene with the troll and the dwarf meeting at the kind yes. of railway cafe while they're waiting. And <laughs> it's it sort of representing this idea that this connects people as much as it connects cities and facilitates economics. Um, and, uh, like, again, I'm not saying that's a bad or a wrong idea, that, but I'm, I'm like, those scenes are lovely, but like there's an inverse to that right like presumably for all these towns that are springing up along the railway there's been communities that are being left behind because the railway is bypassing them where maybe previously you would have had to get a road through that town and stop at that inn now you don't because the the railway just goes by it and gets to you to Querm or you know Genoa or or where you want to be quicker so now you know these these towns are kind of uh, declining for it and it's like well you know maybe they they have to and, and maybe that's inevitable but it's also kind of sad and it's something that like it would just be interesting to see both sides of that teased out more and that side that you said of the idea of kind of atomizing people like that they're all traveling around at the same time but they're also all within their own bubbles and you know this this etiquette developing where you share the same space as people but, but don't speak to them and is that a good thing is it a bad thing i know i just feel like there's much more questions there to be asked than are actually asked in the book like we're we're not asked any questions in this book we're just given a lot of the answers and that's the answers tr- are always the railway is fucking deadly you know which that is, is answer, true but, but I, I feel like i i just wish there were more questions like there are in reaper man with the combine harvester yeah but now here's the thing because i i had this one section like you know bookmark because it stood out to me because it actually stands out in complete contrast to what you're saying but it just seems to be brushed aside earlier on so when moist first arrives at the ironworks he describes it as an absolutely horrible place and it's funny because his thought process is going along the lines of hey there's so much opportunity here but just the way terry pratchett describes the place is just very very grim i'm just going to read an excerpt if that's okay so you can see what i mean so Moist looked around the fiery hellhole that was the ironworks. In the satanic air, he could just about tell the golems from the human workers in their leather overalls, because the golems were the ones walking around holding pieces of red-hot iron in their bare hands. The furnaces illuminated the grey sky, and always and forever the clanging went on, and the pile of fresh new rails got bigger and bigger. Like, that's just one paragraph, and only one paragraph in this entire book, but it does describe it as very grim, but then it's just swept aside. Like, it's never mentioned again. And I remember when he's, like, coming to uh, Harry King's workshop, going through the suburbs, he's kind of describing, like, some kind of shanty town that, like, everyone's going through. And like you said before, the pieces are there. There's potential for some questions to be asked. But, again, it's just kind of swept aside by the victory lap at the end. So it's, it's, it's frustrating that that's there, yeah. but not really teased out. I think the closest you get to it is that scene with the kids almost getting killed from the, you know, they, they just put their ears to the mm. track and Moist has to grab them from and, and it winds up in, in hospital and he kind of rages at Harry King like, oh look, you've got to have barriers, you, you know, you've got to have some kind of safety and <laughs> I'm not saying I wanted those kids to die. <laughs> you can't... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just an awesome the clarification I have to make. Uh, but but you, you know you have to have some like 
like I, I think what he's depicting there is this like the the move from I suppose the construction early construction of the railway being this like very industrial like horrible looking in the passage you just described uh, scene to then when it has to come to serve the public it then has to you know be made more safe and more comfortable and, and so on and there's going to be sort of hiccups along the way there you know like no safety barriers uh, in front of the, the train tracks but it's sort of like the, like there's never any consequence for that you know those those mm-hmm. children are saved and then Harry King like instantly understands yeah you're right gotta make sure that doesn't happen again problem solved you know it just kind of fuels them to go on and continue and do more positive things like saying oh wow you're really fired up about this aren't you yeah I am now let's make like a travel brochure for people later on in the book (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah like like Harry King in general is is okay maybe it's kind of refreshing in a way where he's sort of this you know Del Boy Trotter that's finally made himself a millionaire kind of figure you know Cockney wide boy made good that isn't actually all that nefarious like he isn't going to swindle people he does have integrity and that is kind of refreshing but again it also adds to the lack of tension in that like you think there would be some arguments where his his primary interpretation of the railway is like this is going to make me respectable and this is going to make me more money and maybe there's going to be some arguments when like say stuff like safety for instance is going to cost more and mm. you know it's going to like take money out of his pocket but Moist sees it as ultimately necessary and there's a clash there where you know Harry's like well you're not the one paying for this Mr. You know, Lipwig I am and Moist is like are you going to have those debts on your conscience or whatever you know maybe there's some arguments between like Dick Simnel being the, the engineer the genius who made this who's like so into the railway that like he doesn't really see the practical sides of you know like making it as something that people is affordable and comfortable for people to get on and you know Harry King has to kind of like argue him round on that and he feels that like King's money is making the whole thing less pure than it was when he was just mucking about in his shed you know and they they have somewhere they don't really you know like there's so mm. much potential for for him not to be a more negative figure Harry King but to be at least be a figure that causes some kind of conflict by just representing you know monetary interests that are going to run up against other interests there is a nice bit too when Simnel, you know, when Simnel first goes to see him, and he says something like, "Oh, my mother told me to act dumb," and you see how people are really going to treat you. And that bit's nice, like, and it's kind of subversion of we're kind of primed to see Simnel as a bit of a naive country bumpkin in the city, but it just speaks to like, okay, there's never going to be any tension and arguments between these two, and then later, like the bit where the reporter asks Simnel about the safety of it, and he's just like. This unworldly engineer whose life is trains, like who we see is kind of like, you know, like endearingly uncomfortable and fumbling in his affections for Emily King because he, again, he's just like, he's so into trains, he doesn't know how to talk to her, is when faced with a hostile reporter arguing a pointed, sensationalist, but ultimately legitimate inquiry about like how safe this is or not he's able to like completely like just like you know monologue him down like he on this 
speech just uh, unfolds from his throat about like how you know reporters like uh, this this fellow from this Pseudopolis whatever it is are like scummy bastards just looking you know <laughs> looking for a sensation and looking to cause fear and he, he's comp- able to like eloquently defend the railway without any problems whatsoever like again wouldn't it be nice if like not that I disagree with the points he's making but wouldn't it be nice if because Simnel is someone who's like he's he's an engineer and he spends most of his time just tinkering with the train he doesn't quite know how to talk to like laymen yeah. about this and he says something that like while innocent offers some sensationalist fodder to the press it blows up Moist then has to kind of plumas people and you know use his silver tongue to talk people around wouldn't that be more interesting than like Dick Simnel suddenly becoming this like eloquent speaker for the uh, for the railway but sorry I you, you you said you had a theory about uh, Harry King and uh, Simnel. Yeah, there's an early reference, I think, where that alludes to the idea that uh, Henry King is basically just the fat controller from Thomas the Tank Engine. And I think that yeah, that's something yeah. that Terry Pratchett is quite married to in this. That I, I, I'm, I, I would not be at all surprised if when he was writing up this book, and he wanted, okay, we need someone, like a figurehead for this. It's like, okay, who's a big fat person who could kind of put in place of the fat controller so I can make a joke of it later? Harry King, he's a good guy. And a lot of his personality traits kind of sync up as well. So that's quite convenient. So I feel like a lot of the reason that um, he's kind of portrayed as this very good person, like not ne- necessarily as seedy as he was in previous books, is largely due to the idea that he syncs up with that image that Terry Pratchett has portrayed for him but I also do agree with you what you're saying about uh, Ned Simnel like I think more than anything in this book they just he just wants to be portrayed as the extremely likable country bumpkin and I think if he makes any serious mistakes he could he would it would either he would have to redeem himself for that mistake which would add more probably a couple of more extra paragraphs which this book really doesn't need or he would just have to remain as a guy who made a mistake and kind of be lesser in our opinion. So I I can kind of see his reasoning behind why he didn't do that. Um, but I do think you're right. I do think it would have been a yeah, lot more again, interesting I mean, and believable if he had done that. Yeah, and it wouldn't necessarily mean the book being longer because there are other bits that you could just take out that, you know, we don't really need and, and fill that up mm. with with kind of uh, conflict and reconciliation and redemption for, for a figure like Simnel. There's an interesting bit at the end when him and Moist have an argument where he's like, what what are you for, Mr. Lipwig? What do you do? What do you make? And again, it, it sort of reminded me of like Moist's arguments with Bent in Making Money where it's like style up against substance. Like, you know, mm. like Bent, although in, in the uh, field of engineering rather than economics, Simnel is all substance, Moist is all style. And there's a potential for like a clash there where they just kind of are fundamentally at odds with one another about their priorities, their values, how they go about doing things, even if they're ultimately on the same side. But again, like it, it happens and is instantly resolved, never comes to anything. Uh, but in that moment, there's like the ghost of what could have been an interesting, uh, you know, conflict in this book. You're never satisfied, Colin. That's your problem. life is is to be never satisfied other than in fleeting moments those fleeting moments have come when I'm reading really good Discworld books fleeting like like a runaway train you could say and small gods (laughs) and Nightwatch and not not this unfortunately (laughs) well 
you know, each to their own. Okay, agree to disagree. I mean, I I'm not I'm not arguing your points. To be fair, you've made some really really valid points. I'm in this in this situation. I'm just like a lot more happier to forgive because of and it is just like an over romanticized view. Like the 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 high points for me just were very very high. I just thought they were like re- like the images that he portrays and the vast majority of them are on the train. Yeah, like I, I do agree with you. There is like a lot of bloat. There's a lot of potential for things that could be. There's kind of like fun little foibles in the middle that you know, fun little scenes that you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of nice. But um, like one scene that comes to mind is I forget the landowner, the landowner's name, but uh, he's the one who tries to get Moist really drunk so that he can negotiate like a really good deal for himself. But Moist has some kind of contraption hidden under his vest so that all the stuff that he drinks just goes into these like uh bot or plastic bottles beneath his vest that, that was another one with me where like it's kind of funny and then you think about it for a second like the stoker bike thing I was like hang on how would this work like he has a hot water bottle under his like shirt or something that he's getting this like how does he do this without that fella seeing and does your man comment about like oh, yeah mr lippa you have a much bigger belly than i thought last time because <laughs> he's got this <laughs> expanding thing. which again I, I think could make for a funny scene if you are seeing it unfold with moist like surreptitiously mm. you know desperate like pouring the whiskey in when you're when your man turns around to stoke the fire or something and you know he's having these whatever he's got like hot water bottles or whatever containers expanding under him and the guy's noticing and moist is trying to like rapidly like wrap the discussion up and just like so anyway you know because at this point your man's probably well drunk and he's not that could be really how fun, would you but we d- how would you do it column you tell me how would you do it <laughs> what like that but that could, that could be really fun but we don't we don't get that that's what i mean we we get kind of like it's just mm. it, it's all explained after the fact like we're told that happened rather mm. than seeing it happen mm. yeah okay there's one more thing i'd like to put there and then we can handle Twitter questions and, and get to ranking it if unless you have... Yeah, no, no, go to. ahead. So this is something that I can't say uh, weighs on my mind a lot or I see it as a big flaw of the book, but I do think it's something worth talking about because it is ultimately a big part of the resolution of the book. And I can well imagine it's probably something that weighs on other people's minds when they read this, which is... So the dwarf gender... Um, roles the dwarves and, and the, the way in which they progressed right like again i'm you know very wary uh, as a lot of the time of reading you know mapping it on to one-to-one parallels in uh in, in reality like oh this is exactly like mm. you know the oppression of women in x religious community or this is exactly like you know uh, uh gay people in in the closet this is exactly like trans people you know tra- transitioning and so on but obviously there, there's a lot like there's I don't think it can be mapped so one-to-one onto those things, but it obviously has a lot of resonance with those issues. Mm. And kind of, when we read it, a lot of, I suppose, the uh, emotional power of those moments comes from the fact that we do have issues in in our own world, uh, possibly in our own lives, that we can kind of, we can see resonating with, with what he's depicting here. And I just wonder, like, is there a case to be made, and again, this is, I suppose, like, a lawyerly way of doing things. Like, you know, where your witness, uh, you know, your prose- uh, prosecution lawyer and, and deliberately trying to find something. But in that... So he depicts it as, like, a, a kind of... Ultimately, like, like a, you know, a liber- um, liberating thing for dwarf females to be openly female. 
But hmm. what happens then is their gender roles just kind of end up aligning with like conventional human cis heterosexual gender roles, like where the women were, are able to wear skirts and makeup and stuff rather than pretend to be men. So uh, what, what I mean to say is you could potentially argue that like before, theoretically, because this it, we don't see this in the books. Like in the books, we chiefly through Cheery, we see a character who in not being able to express her femininity is feeling very repressed and, you know, stressed and so on. But you can theoretically argue that like in the, the, the kind of default dwarf gender that's there prior to any of this, it doesn't necessarily have to be male in the way that, like, we know it as cis heterosexual humans. Mm. It can be kind of like that they just don't have gender roles, and that what we're really witnessing over the course of these books is the creation of gender roles for dwarfs, you know? Like, it's like previously there was a kind of one-size-fits-all container for whatever your gender identity was as a dwarf. Now, hmm. you it, like what we move towards is fitting it into recognizable cis heterosexual ones of like, oh, the, the low king is actually female, so she's gonna call herself Bloodwin and you know wear skirts and stuff now. And you can you, you could maybe argue, oh, is is that liberating? Like, is it more liberating that people wouldn't know about these things and that you would kind of have whatever conception of your own gender identity is in your private life and with those around you. Again, look, cis heterosexual male here talking, it's not like I can talk from any great direct experience and I'm not arguing that this necessarily is like a, you know, whatever emphatic point I'm wholly behind. I just suggest it as a talking point because I've heard it raised before and I think it's worth mentioning because this book mm. climaxes with like the low king embracing this conventionally feminine identity as this great liberating modernizing moment for dwarf culture and i think like it's certainly fair enough to read it that way but i just put this point out because i think you could potentially read it in another way where what we're seeing is just them moving towards a much more conventional society as we know it rather than their own society before i see where you're coming from and it's god it's it's, it's an absolute uh... It's absolute philosophical salad there. Like, there's so much to unpick. Like, in terms of, uh, you know, how, like, how 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 you would actually, um, yeah, because as you say, like, uh, it is kind of normalizing the idea of binary gender roles. If the idea that the uh, dwarves can come out as female, and you could, if you're reading it from that perspective, there isn't. There, well, there's not not to say that there isn't any room, but it certainly hasn't been explored. The idea of that occurring and there also being like queer dwarfs in uh, that sense, that sense. But then the thing is, you can also take a queer reading of this and say that the dwarfs coming out can be viewed as like you know, uh, you know, coming out in in the homosexual sense. It's interesting that I think the main I. I because uh, Terry Pratchett himself was also like cis heterosexual, I think he kind of handled this in an interesting way, and in that he he kept things <laughs> deliberately vague and complicated. I think, as far as as far as I can tell, because that way there are you you can read that you can do like the whole death of the author thing and read this whatever way you want. And actually, an interesting thing, a way that I re- like when I was reading this book. And I found myself reading it, which I hadn't known in any of the previous books, was I kind of read this one as 
the abolition of toxic masculinity as opposed to anything else. That like these dwarves who are coming out, like were kind of um, you know, uh, kind of expressing a more traditionally sensitive side to themselves and looking to other people to be more progressive and open to new ideas. That was the way that I found myself thinking about it. But um, it's a tricky one. This one, it, it because there are so many different avenues you can take with this, and because uh, it's it's so there's so many aspects from different academic studies you could take on this that I think uh, you any 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 perspective you take on this probably has validity. So yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to untangle. <laughs> yeah, you can tell how much we're stumbling around at this and how, uh, how uncomfortable we are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, two cis heterosexual males, like, I don't know. <laughs> we're the right ones to sort it out. We have, we have perspective and objectivity. We're not hysterical like the rest of them. <laughs> They're too involved if it's their own identity. They wouldn't know what to think. Um, no, I just, uh, yeah, I, I suppose it... it I, I mean, I, I bring it up because I saw it talked about and it kind of occurred to me that, like, you have that scene early on before the low king has explicitly been identified as a female both in gender terms and in sexual terms since since she's pregnant where the low king we're told that the low king and Aaron kiss and at that point we don't know you know is one of them secretly female are they both men are they both women are they you I, know, ass- like, I assumed it was Aaron I assumed she was the female which is great yeah and so at that point, their relationship, I suppose, could be anything. And then by the end, it's like, nah, they're a heterosexual couple. And, you know, uh, here's the, uh, the, 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 the low king is the, the pregnant female one. So I suppose it, it kind of in presents a narrative that like is presented as liberating, but ultimately by taking one particular path rules out a lot of other potentially interesting avenues that some readers might interpret as mm. more liberating, you know, Don, the, the ending we get. But as I said, we're uh, not, you know, all that well equipped to talk about it. And <laughs> it, look, again, like my own, but it wasn't something that, like, I've complained enough about what I didn't like in this novel. I can't say that that was uh, an aspect of it that really annoyed me, but I thought mm. it was an aspect that's worth talking about. Ultimately, less toxic masculinity, more toxic by Britney Spears. <laughs> Leave a comment in the comment section on what you think uh, was the. What was your main takeaway from this? Um, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because that was something I kind of wanted to talk about too. So, um, yeah, after that, I feel like we should probably rank this bad boy. Well, we got a couple of questions on Twitter to handle first. Oh. Uh, so, first of all, Reese Howell at GOP56, that's G O H B 56, uh, says. Uh, I'm a few episodes behind, read a book and then listen to the pod, so you may have covered some of this, but I seem to remember that Steam and Snuff felt lesser, and I wondered, was this the embuggerance's fault? And I think we've covered some of that in that, like, I didn't, I mean, there was a lot of Snuff we didn't like, but to me, I, I didn't feel comfortable or sure reading it that it was definitely the result of, like, cognitive impairment that he was suffering from. Whereas here in Steam, particularly in those early bits with Moist and the landowners, and getting those bits regaled to you at such a distance, I really feel like that you can clearly see a stylistic difference that is presumably a consequence of him having to uh, dictate or use text-to-speech rather than typing. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I th- 
like I, I don't think like his ability has deteriorated per se here. I just think it's because he's adapting to a different style of writing that might have affected it. Do you know a funny thing? A little uh, weird parallel I noticed between Snuff and St- Raising Steam was that I remember thinking like. Um, these are things that don't quite work for me. And it reminded me of, you know, the uh, Legend of Zelda DS games. There's the Phantom Hourglass and what was the other one? Spirit Tracks, which also take place on boats and trains. So there's a parallel there of sorts. (laughs) And these were also series that had been going on for a long time. And it went in a new direction because it was utilizing new hardware, much like Terry Pratchett was. And it wasn't quite as successful. It had a lot of merits, but because they were going in a direction that was very much very new, very different, it just didn't quite gel with a lot of people. And I think there's a lot of parallels to be said there. I think Terry Pratchett books and Legend of Zelda games have huge relationships. I don't know. There was a word I was trying to think of there and it just blanked on it. So we'll just say relationships on that one. So, yeah, I mean, I think to, to answer uh, Reese's question, definitely much much more so in this for me. I, I definitely feel like, again, not overly comfortable armchair diagnosing where the embuggerance plays into it. But aspects of this definitely jumped out more to me as being like a cause of that than just a cause of editorial complacency or, you know, uh, lack of energy that was there in, in previous books or, or whatever Wizard of the White Tulip asks us did we feel the book was rushed in places still a good book overall but this it was the main one where I noticed a dip in writing quality that said still a good read I particularly enjoyed the Simnel name coming back and I really enjoyed the way he talked about the known the known of the cosine if we have any listeners from the northeast of England, they're probably going to hate me for that very bad impression of uh, kind of... Well, like, I seem to like get the impression he's, like, Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough. Like, like he's, he's from... The, the way he speaks is meant to be from, you know, the discs equivalent to that area. And actually, I've seen people complain about his accent, and they were like, ah, oh, you know, it's so hard to see what he was saying. I, I, I enjoyed that. Like, that was what, you know... Yeah, like, same, actually. Of, and again, it, it brings back to that like I mean that's that's I believe that's where kind of railways in in the UK in, in round world history began at like wasn't it the Darlington to somewhere else was the uh, was that the first the first um, railway built so those parts of like him up in his shed and his mam and like all of those parts really felt quite vivid to me and more enjoyable and, and more full of energy Wizard's question is, is related to last one felt rushed in places I mean as we've covered it's a weird one. It, it kind of drags out, but also feels rushed in the sense that there are a lot of underwritten bits or undercooked bits or parts that you think could be much more, but instead are hurtled by as we as we get get to the finish. As to the dip in quality, I think it was more of an issue for me than it was for you. I think it was the lack of dramatic tension that might have uh, added to that. There's a word I would try to find. Uh, contributed to that is uh, yeah. So. I mean, the only place in particular that really uh, hurt me was uh, the section with the gnomes. I felt that was rushed way too quickly. Like the rest of it, I again feel like it kind of builds towards the rush of the railway towards the end. But as you said, there are some parts of it that just, yeah, definitely, definitely rushed. And but yeah, it's it, it's a book of that's going in two different directions. Like so. Yeah, it's tricky. Incidentally, you are right. Yeah, it was in uh, England that the first railway happened. Apparently, it was going to South Wales. 
Oh, okay. Maybe it, it, maybe it wasn't in the, in the northeast then, like I assumed. Yeah, again, known known racist Steve Hill, but obviously <laughs> have a problem with with that part of the book. But uh, the the other last question is is uh, Wizard of the White Shield also asked, "How are you feeling now that the last book lays before you? How are you feeling, Steve?" <sighs> I mean, um, definitely a bit melancholy about it. Like, I mean, for the longest time, I remember thinking because. Uh, because we we have like busy lifestyles, you know. We both have full time jobs, so we we are busy. Uh, so I remember there was, a, and we both enjoy reading, obviously. So there was a part of me thinking, like, wow, I'm really looking forward to reading a book that isn't a Terry Pratchett book on the side, because we've been doing this for about what two years now. So I've only read about like three books that weren't Terry Pratchett books in the last while. But having said that, like as we come to the close, I am feeling a bit sad about it. There's even a little part of me that's thinking, because I feel like we have improved how we uh, view these books and how we discuss them. It's like, maybe we can go back and do them all again, because we've <laughs> we've uh, gotten a little bit better at analysing them. Start again at, like, The Colour of Magic. <laughs> but, I don't know, how are you feeling about it, Colin? Yeah, there's a, I certainly know that, uh, that feeling of, I think, that a lot of podcasters get when you get a while into your you know into your, your podcast where you look back in the early episodes and think oh, i wish i could do that do that again um <laughs> will relish the freedom that comes with uh not having to like a lot of a lot of these books some of, some of them i hadn't read before we done this so there it was interesting reading them. some of them i had read but got a lot more from reading them with an eye for the podcast so it's not that it was a huge burden or anything like that, but it certainly it will be freeing not to have to kind of factor that into my reading habits in in the future. You know, uh, like there's a couple of novels I've got recently that I haven't started. I'm kind of juggling between nonfiction and re- like dipping into short stories, and then the novel I'm reading is, you know, the the, the Discworld one we're doing for the uh, whichever Discworld one we're doing for the the podcast that'll be kind of freeing but yeah this is sort of um i i know yeah yeah me- melancholy i suppose because you you get to the end and there's a there's a sense of our ending rather than climax yeah it i don't think it'll be our last podcast so that's you know something yeah 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 the future will will hold what it holds um uh, we'll just have to there ain't no getting off this train we're on, to quote Barrett from Final Fantasy VII. God, it's an interesting Venn diagram. The people who get that now, well, actually, it's probably a fairly big Venn diagram. Actually, probably the, I'd say the correlation between the two is pretty high. The people who get uh, that quote and also read these books, considering that's more or less how we, how we met. Okay, so should we go about listing this? Yeah, yeah. Um... So, where were you thinking? Um, well, I feel like for the time being, because we mentioned it a couple of times, I'm looking at Reaper Man, which I know is quite high, but as a starting point, I definitely rank it below Would Reaper you Man. fuck off as a starting point? Like, this. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine, fine, fine. Okay, okay. How about... I'll, I'll, let's this see. This is definitely like... Okay, this reference will be lost on you and probably a lot of listeners. But the other day, my dad was complaining... This is going to be a sports about, um, thing, Nino isn't Rinola, it? The kind of football super agent saying that he wanted uh, one of his clients, Irving Haaland, to be played a million a week 
and and I, I was saying to, to my dad, I was like, well, that's an outrageous amount of money, but he doesn't really want that. He's just using it as a tactic so that negotiations will start from that point and whatever club is trying to buy Haaland will only be able to argue him down so far from a million. So he'll still end up with like an enormous amount of money. And I feel like this is the same illegitimate Mino Raiola like specious tactic you're using by trying to like sit up there with Reaper Man. Like just looking at, uh, like no way you could argue this is better than like a half full of sky or a show where midnight or witches abroad or, or you know last hero. I mean like Yeah, fair. Come on, even as I'm saying them like are you gonna have this argument? Like there's no way you can argue it's better than moving pictures. Okay, okay, fine. How about making money? How about we go from there? That's number thirty. Um Okay. Uh, so I think making money is better than it uh, I think Moist is a more vivid character in making money I think he has more stakes and more actual characters to bounce off as I said here he's literally just a pair of eyes and ears whereas he actually has arguments of substance with other characters in making money I would argue that the arguments that he has in making money are <sighs> fairly derivative and that the most of the narrative like points that he has in that book they because they're too similar to the previous book i i would question the merits of that book i would put this above making money to be honest but like at least there are arguments right like like you could replace moist with like you know say a generic early disc world protagonist here a victor uh a tepic, you know, like it wouldn't make a difference. Like if he was just kind of Joe Bloggs who veterinary hires to market the railway, right? Like there's nothing but really. He has, he has all these moments where, like, when he's like considering how to, uh, like, different tweaks that he can do to the railway system. Like that moment that he has where he meets the lady in the carriage and she talks about uh, travel brochures and like where he's considering, like, constantly considering, like. Like 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 a railway lo- locomotive, always thinking of different ideas that he can use for this. Like and you know these moments where he goes into the frenzy, like on the goblin drugs and dancing on the t- roof of the train. From my interpretation, he's a much more vivid character in this one than he is in Making Money, where he's just like a shadow of the character he was in the previous book. Well, but but again, in Making Money, you have the motivation at the start where he's bored like of his success in life so he kind of jumps in to doing this other dangerous unpleasant job and i mean like in like in this in you know like okay i'll give you trains are more interesting than banking systems but i'd still argue he has the same things and make money of like he's thinking of ideas but to innovate but i think the difference is he has to argue for those ideas he runs up against bent he runs up against the lavishes those there there is a sense of like substance there's a sense of like you know that that his changes to the banking system will both ultimately be of the uh, beneficial to society but you can see why people oppose them here like yeah he's having those moments like meeting the lady on the train about you know the, the travel guides no one's opposing him like no one really no one's substantial come on the grags the grags are nothing you know like they're like He's having these ideas and they're all just happening and there's no tension. I'll, I'll be honest, like, I, I, w- I would argue for this one being last. Like, I just think it, it kind of, it... What? Like, com- no last. way. No, yeah, sorry, look, definitely look at not. It. Okay, no, no, look at this, right? Eric is last, right? 
Like, yeah. Eric has more joy and verve and ideas and is a much more fun book to read than, than this. It is not a fun book to read. It absolutely is. Like... <laughs> It's 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 so immemorable. Like you you come out of Eric, and like I I can the only part I can remember two parts of Eric, okay three parts actually now in hindsight. But like they're like the key points, and I can remember no other details, like no specifics. Like I remember when Rincewind gets summoned by Eric. I remember when they go to, uh, it's the allegory for like the Trojan War, and he meets the girl who's supposed to be the most beautiful in the world, and she's much older. And the bit at the very end where they meet like that god person thing, and Eric gets trapped there. It's, it it's it's like it's got plot points like it, it's got bullet points it's got three bullet points and it builds from that it's this one it like at least it delves like it might go in separate directions I, I will concede that but at least like it goes in interesting directions it goes in worthwhile directions Eric does nothing no but look look I, I would not like Eric is fundamentally I like insubstantial compared to a lot of the other Discworld books again because it was meant to be released as like an illustrated one you know, and it well, originally was, but has now kind of been folded into the overall series. But, like, I, I just think it's much more enjoyable to read it because it's fun, it zips along, it's funny, you get a lot of vivid scenes and characters. And uh, Trump card here, right? The the conflict with the villains in Eric, where Astavagal, the king of hell, is this modernizing force who's made a much more boring hell that is actually much more horrible to experience than the previous kind of fire and brimstone demons sticking forks up your arse hell previously. That is then opposed by other older demons who want this traditional return to hell. He's kind of kicked upstairs in a funny parody of like how sort of corporate power grabs work where he gets this do-nothing executive consultant position and he's just in an office where no one listens to him. That that's a much more substantial interrogation of like conflicts with modernizing modernization in particular developments and cultures in this place kind of demonic workplace culture in uh, raising steam I suppose like like a you know travel and, and dwarven culture that's like much more fun interesting multifaceted way of doing it than like trains good grags bad that we get here. Yeah, but what about the idea of the train going, like, over a bridge, like, constructed of, like, a form of magic that is just, like, you know, an intrinsic part of the Discworld and the fantasy genre? So there's, like, a melding of, like, modernity and, like, fantastical tropes in, like, a way that I would argue is, like, has a beautiful synergy. Synergy? Sorry? Um, like, I... No, I, I, I'm sorry. I cannot concede that, like, Eric but is, like, that's, better that's than this book. one scene at the end. That's one scene at the end. One scene... There's a lot of like, enjoyable bits in this thing. There's a lot of enjoyable moments in this. I'm not conceding. No a, way. Not a, a chance. There's a lot of enjoyable bits, bits in Eric. I listed three. Yeah, you listed three that you can think of. Listen, nouveau blow in. You weren't even on the podcast cover now. I oh, know where you. Was that your first? <laughs> yes, I was. I read that one as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, my point is, uh, like, I, 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 you know, I could list more. You have to, like, you have to part with the kind of the Tezuman and the, the like. They have the tiny god, the uh, Quez Overclatel, and he's just like, like, uh, tiny little demon is convinced him he's a god, and then the luggage comes in and squashes them. 
it's got a funny scene metaphor at the end of uh, Rincewind and Eric literally crawling out of hell through good intentions the, like a nice literalization of the metaphor the road to hell is paved in good intentions when they're climbing up the stairs and, they, and they've got the things on them uh, like all of this I'd argue is it's also it's not a like for like comparison right because Raising Steam is like probably more than double maybe even three times the length of Eric it's trying to be a more substantial book so like I'm arguing that like in relative terms for like a, a hundred and whatever page book or whatever Eric is you know when you kind of take it to pictures and just get the conventional level format Eric manages to do a lot more within that within the scope of just trying to be a fun romp than Raising Steam tries to do being a serious book in like triple the length like Raising Steam to me like fails as a kind of serious interrogation of like teams and ideas I'm not saying there aren't good moments and there aren't good teams and as I said it's it's kind of frustratingly replete throughout the whole book with the ghosts of what could be really interesting moments and conflicts that aren't uh, teased out but then it fails as a kind of fun romp victory lap last go around the disc world that it could have been I mean, if if we got another book like Eric, like if we if if Raising Steam had been two hundred pages long and just like full of laughs and trills and crazy ideas, I I think like okay, yeah, this is self indulgent, but fuck it, he's aren't being self indulgent. This is a fun way to bid goodbye to all of those characters. Instead, we get something that yeah, I'll agree, aims a lot higher than Eric ever did, but crashes a lot lower. I I've completely disagree with that completely like i like yeah you're saying that yeah if like what we got instead of raising steam was another eric then yeah we'd be like ecstatic about it but but not ecstatic but like he that he's earned it like even if it is a little bit derivative but yeah of course we would feel that way because it would be so different from what has come before but this is a book series that has constantly evolved it's gone from like the you know fantastical tourism books of earlier to something much more significant and you can see that like in the last three books that we have listed sorcery color and magic and eric all three of those are those books like the ones that are just like fantastical tourism and that is essentially what they are they're great concepts but thematically completely empty like i like I, i cannot concede this one like absolutely not like it's just this book it like it explores interesting ideas of modernity and admittedly shallowly i will concede that but like it does explore the idea of a fantastical world going into a more modern age and uh, it's I, I, I just I can't concede this one I just cannot this is like the small gods argument all over again like this is just one that I cannot concede I'm sorry look okay I mean looking okay looking above Eric then the colour of magic is it like the colour of magic is the first one presents us with these kind of like uh, okay yeah it's, it's essentially four novellas kind of knitted together rather than a single novel but they're all vivid and fun they all send up conventions of sword and sorcery and fantasy in not only a funny way but in a way that's just so like full of life and just full of energy like the scenes we get with like in Bel Shumharat's uh, temple they manage to be like legitimately spooky at times but also being a really fun send up of Lovecraftian mythos the scenes we get in the Wirenberg which is a kind of parody of Anne um, what's her name Anne uh, oh Dragon Rider's a parent Anne McCaffrey while also being this 
cool image of like it's a fucking upside down mountain and they're walking around with hooks on their feet you know and they're like riding dragons that you have to imagine into being like you know and, and even just the, the central relationship between Rincewind and the two flower this like cynical cowardly wizard and this naive optimistic tourist is like much more interesting than any relationship we get in Raising Steam okay before I address that, uh, because a large part of me is going like, oh, yeah, that book was great. Uh, <laughs> the problem here is, is the contrast, right? Because like we are describing the books that, as we said, are like fantastical tourism. And because the contrast is so major, we're feeling wistful about those. So just before I come back to that, because I will argue that some more. Can I ask you, what about Unseen Academicals? Would you put the? How would you rate this against that book? There is a book that, like, we you had similar issues with. Like, we both had similar issues in that sense, uh, sense because there were no stakes and uh, just like he was reaching for something and he didn't quite achieve it. How would you rank Raising Steam against Unseen Academicals? Um, I mean, I don't know. I feel like you could kind of argue it up or down. Unseen Academicals has a lot of the same issues you're, you're right like lack of tension and so on in a sense of like that the the central conflicts in the book are being presented in a much more straightforward and shallow way than they you know than they we, we've seen them done elsewhere but I, I feel like you're right it is very hard to rate Raising Steam up against Colour Magic but I don't necessarily think that means it should just leapfrog Colour Magic in those rankings because we don't want to have that <laughs> argument like I'd still argue Color Magic's better. It's a more enjoyable book. I mean, God, look, look me, look me in the eye. Across oceans, across continents, across eight hours time difference or whatever we're at, and tell me there is a better relationship in Raising Steam than the one we get between Rincewind and Dewflower in Color Magic. Yeah, no, I can't. Yeah, like Color Magic's the better it's a better book like it, he's he's done right away I mean, he's done so much he's done so much and and again like raising steam a lot of people say i'm being very harsh on this and he was writing it as you said more, more than anything we've re- read so far this feels like you can see the impact of his cognitive decline and that's look that's fair enough and you know what he achieved in even writing it is an impressive achievement but he was still writing it and he was still putting it out and frankly, I think it would be patronizing to him to kind of grade this one on a core based on like, oh, well, you know, doesn't really matter now. It's just this little one at the end. We'll give it to-. like he still felt this was a book that should be published. There's that really moving bit. I mean, we both read Mark Burroughs biography where shortly before he died, he got to a point where he said, Terry Pratchett, the writer is gone. I can't write anymore. And mm. up until that point, he was writing, and he was writing, and he was putting it out for people to experience. He wasn't saying, oh, oh I'm going to put this out, but look, don't really count it against the others because I'm not, you know, uh, like my mental health is declining. He was still putting it out. He was still trying to do what he loved and be a writer. So for all that, that's why I'm kind of, in as much as yes, there is a gigantic overarching reason as to why this one isn't or perhaps couldn't be as good as the others he was still putting it out and trying to achieve things in writing and to me it's kind of patronizing to him not to assess it in the same way so i would say to close if like he's done so much as a writer he's like certainly the author above all others that i have more of his books of than any other writer i know if color of magic was the only book he wrote 
he would still have a like a fun place in the pantheon, a fun, small place, but like a fun place in the pantheon of fantasy writers. He'd be like, mm. oh, there's this lad in the 80s, he came out with this like mad, crazy send-up of sword and sorcery. It's it's uh, it's such a laugh. Like read it, you'll enjoy it. If Raising Steam was the only book he ever wrote, like he wouldn't, you know, we, we maybe like the idea would kind of in the abstract way be like, ah, oh, trains and fantasy. Yeah, there, there was a fellow who tried that, but come on, like he wouldn't, you know. Okay, fair enough. You've convinced me, but I I'll concede Color of Magic, but I'm going to have to ask you to concede Eric. I'll rate, rank it between Colour of Magic and Eric, but I won't rate it below okay. Eric. Cool. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Right. So it's funny. That's the... I mean, we had kind of really the, the biggest arguments we have are kind of either end of the table, isn't it? On like how, yeah. how high Small God should be and how low uh, Raising Steam should be. Look, we're, this is one we clearly have very different opinions of, but it's it's been a more interesting podcast to record, I think, because... Mm for me to talk about this with you because you feel so differently on it than I do I hope it's been the same for you and I hope yeah, no, absolutely, when the listeners yeah. get to this it'll be the same for them rather than like hearing either the two of us tear it apart for you know two and a half hours or the two of us say oh it's actually kind of good you know for hmm. uh, two and a half hours it's conflict is the core of drama to be fair I can absolutely can like you you made a lot of very good points that I can't really argue on um, I know that a lot of the reasons that I really like this book is that it spoke to me and like it I have a very romanticized view of it and it's very hard to separate it from the idea of this being like one of the last books because it does feel like the last book and even th- like it, it for me it was very difficult to separate those two ideas so from th- that that's why um, it resonated for me personally ultimately the act of us ranking this thing is a kind of interesting exercise but ultimately a completely like you know silly one like it's like it's not like this rankings in any way definitive other than that like you know it's it's definitive in the sense that we've read all of these like so we we kind of have the right <laughs> to have an opinion of them but like <laughs> you, you, you do you know what i mean like uh there, i'm sure there's been plenty of times where a particular book found a place on the list where if we had recorded about it in different times of our lives we would have felt very differently you know who knows who knows how much of my antipathy towards raising steam is down to like you know we're months into the third lockdown in ireland and i've been like up to my eyeballs in work (laughs) and just feel like tired and stressed a lot of the time (laughs) but uh but it is what it is you know we kind of we we rank them when we do and yeah it's a it's a silly exercise but a fun one but that will conclude that we will see you next time for, for the Shepherd's Crown, for the uh, last, final, absolutely final chapter in this great journey that has been the Discworld. Until then, mm. farewell, listeners. Goodbye, and always watch the stars. Watch the skies, you dope. Whatever. He wanted to get the ride from a vampire.